the best rugby insight and analysis. OTB Sports Rugby. How, how would you argue if Johnny Sexton was to go and win a World Cup with Ireland and lead them to it that he wouldn't be the greatest? Subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Right, it's half past seven. It's Tuesday morning. You're very welcome along. If you want to get involved, we'd love to hear from you. 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number. Or, of course, you can always uh, leave a comment on the YouTube stream. We're live on YouTube. We're live on uh, OTB Sports Radio. You can get that on your smart speaker. You can get it on our app. It's the easiest way. You can plug it in through the car. I see a lot of people doing that these days. Uh, Shane, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning, Joe. How are things? Very good. Uh, Jason Sherlock's in the papers. It could have been your manager, isn't your manager? It's a yeah. It's a, it leaves a bittersweet taste when uh, when these commercial gigs come up, and eventually they have to speak. I'm sure they don't want to speak whatsoever, and Jason's no different. But um, yeah, it doesn't hint. We read this differently. You were like, oh, he, he didn't want to get involved in management. Was was your That's the way I read it yesterday? But certainly the quotes today you're, in you're the like, papers are wider. No, he just didn't want. It wasn't. It wasn't us. It was him. <laughs> the way I read it is, it wasn't him. It was you. It's that's not you, what it's I'm. Me. That's what I'm reading. It. It's not me. It's you. Yeah. It, it's. Um, it's a strange one. It certainly hints at um, some problems in the process up in Monaghan. I don't know what's what's going on. You have to, you have to. It's not exactly groundbreaking to say there's a problem in the process when it's the September thirteenth. They're and fast. They still don't have You'll a say that they're 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 like they're taking their time. Well, it's I know it's the same in Donegal and Roscommon, but it's not quite. What's going on? It's it's not quite as embarrassing as in Monaghan because Monaghan have had the very uh, public rejections, like Jared Brennan was. Nailed on as well, and that clearly fell fell through. Um, I mean, you're you're hearing names within the county mentioned. Um, I know I've heard Nine Moyna's name mentioned in recent days. Right. I don't know. It's it's one of these as, things as the as the manager as the manager potentially. Um, like Oshie McConville is in the papers today talking about the Mayo gig and how he thought that that Mayo team has a three year window to win. That they're like he's seen loads of them and he was very excited about going in there. <laughs> and then when that didn't happen, like uh, Wicklow snapped him up straight away. <laughs> This is this is the embarrassing thing again for Monaghan. Is that maybe Oshin wouldn't do another? Would he not? Would he not do another Ulster team? Maybe that was the reason. But but he's currently managing club football in Monaghan in a, in a scheme there into the county senior championship semi final as of last weekend. He he said when the Monaghan job came up, I'm not interested in the county management whatsoever at the minute. Then he takes the Wicklow job. So that that to me was another rejection maybe for Monaghan that he just didn't fancy that gig. You're not even in the ball game for that one. No, not even not even close. And then he goes and takes that Wicklow job, which uh, yeah, and, and obviously he was on the undercard for the for one of the Mayo roles. I mean, why aren't these lads wanting the Monaghan job? I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. Geographically, it's a good one. You're only up the M1. It's not a million miles from from Dublin or the middle of the country. You're going to get your expenses Monaghan has a, has a few quid lying up there as well they have a few sponsors that have come on board in recent years so there's there's a bit of money they've got a lot of talent a lot of talent now the age profile of the team isn't great no it's not Like obviously Darren Hughes and Conor McManus are reaching kind of the the, the, the latter days of their careers but there's one last push like just just pie off the Ulster Championship and <laughs> and see how you get on in the group stages like yeah. no one's going to want to be going to Clonus well that's the thing I know the Ulster Championship is the, all that matters to you I know I know but you've won it a couple of times you know what it's like now a couple of times but 2015 was the last one Malachi no, O'Rourke was matter, uh, it doesn't matter anymore I know it, it actually doesn't matter I know it's the greatest tournament in the world but it doesn't matter <laughs> but tell, tell, a, tell a Cork Hurling fan or a Waterford Hurling fan that the Monster uh, I mean, Cork, it doesn't matter. Cork are soft. Well, maybe, maybe. Yeah, your words, not mine. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things. Like 
there are still a lot, lot of young players coming through him on it. I've heard of a couple of players, I think Niall Kearns and Ryan McInesby potentially heading to Australia. So they won't be involved from on in next year. So that's a couple of Travelling as opposed to... Uh, Travelling, as far as I know. Right. Um, as opposed to playing Aussie rules. But... Um, like and that's just a couple that you've heard of but then there's a lot of young lads coming through a couple of minor Monaghan Minor and other 21 teams have done reasonably well in recent years won a couple of provincial titles so there's players there uh, there's money in Monaghan it's a decent job they're a division 1 team I mean the split season short, shorter year exactly I don't know why they wouldn't take it and the club game in Monaghan is very strong like even at the weekend there Clintibbert and Scotstown and Conor McManus was, was excellent for Clintibbert are you all fighting amongst yourselves is that, is that, is that, there, is that a case. bit of a problem well th- you th- can tell us Shane no one's watching there might, there might be issues in the county board in terms of do we want an outside manager or an inside manager yeah. and, and I know there's a lot of debate all the time about that in counties but because like, you've heard Vinnie Corey's name come up and Owen Lennon's name come up within the county as well Vinnie was part of Banty's backroom team so maybe he wants to distance himself from it but from the outside it has always appeared to me as if Monaghan is one of the best administered counties in the country they were the first ones to come up with the star system yeah. around league games where your inter-county players will play a set number of league games yeah. even when the, the whole rest of the country couldn't make anything work Monaghan were making themselves work and they were punching above their weight so this doesn't make any sense now maybe they're going to pull a rabbit from the hat and maybe Niall Moyne is exactly the person you want at this stage of his career potentially yeah I know he was involved as a selector in, in, you know, down through the years but a long time ago for Monaghan he was part of the Scotstown teams that won All-Ireland or uh, Ulster club titles back in the days as well. Ah, so he's a Monaghan man. He, oh, he's a Monaghan man now. Ah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, no. it's a homecoming. No. Yeah, it's, he's a local voice um, and and very well known. Like I'm interested to hear Gronya McAwain's taking this as a fellow Scotstown woman of. Oh, of you taking over today? Yeah. So <laughs> we'll we'll get her thoughts on it. But it's 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 a bizarre one for me because you see the likes of Ray Dempsey, um, you know, not getting the Mayo job, and you're thinking, oh, maybe he'll, you know, he's obviously interested in intercounty management. Maybe he just wanted to manage his home county. But if he's really interested in inter-county management, why not take the Roscommon job or the Monaghan job or the Donegal job? Um, so it begs, to, like, and maybe Derek McGrath will have a say on this later on as well. We spoke, myself and Adrian spoke on AM a couple of weeks ago to Jack Cooney, the outgoing Westmead football manager, about the stresses of inter-county management and just the fact that it's so... Like, I, I was at... Um, it was a Galway Senior Football Championship doubleheader on Sunday in Pierce Stadium and I decided to, to head into it. I was in Galway anyway for a birthday party. And like you're watching John O'Mahony manage Salty Lot in Cara, and you're thinking, not many people around the country would know that John O'Mahony, double All Ireland winning manager, is a club manager at Salt Hill. It's so under the radar. Now, obviously, within Galway, there's a lot of interest, but the the, the difference in in the public image and the the pressure of an intercounty job compared to a club job is is remarkable, and that's why a lot of these managers potentially don't want anywhere near the Monaghan job or the Roscommon job or the Donegal jobs. I mean, there's so much. That Maliki O'Rourke was essentially handed the Donegal job on a plate in the last month or so and said, nope, rather stay with Glenn. Was it Carol Kane? It was on the piece that I did in the evening anyway, um, talk about the situation in Donegal and said, Brendan Devaney on, he was like, oh, Maliki O'Rourke, is, he's perfect. And then it was the next day, O'Rourke was like, no thanks. But I think it might have been Carol who said in that conversation that Andy McGinley said the next time he takes an intercounty job, he's going to have to take a career break. Like, yeah. You, and you can't just be taking career breaks to no. be an intercounty manager. Like you need an employer who's going to be like, okay, you can you can stick with us, <laughs> or or like in, in in this case, I think he might be self-employed as a as a physiotherapist. Um, but it's like how you know the, how do you do that? But you, really, I wonder about it because like even one of the names mentioned in Monaghan was David McCaig, who's a, who's a, he's now principal of St McCartan's College in Monaghan Town. That's a job that probably means takes you can't. a bit of time. Well, but Colin O'Rourke is. 
Like, is he not principal of a... He's retired now, I think. He's retired now, fair yeah. enough, so he has the time. But, yeah, I, I can I mean, see... Uh, Brian Cody did manage to be a school principal and also the greatest uh, GA <laughs> manager of all time. It's not bad. I do think that um, Cody had, like, one of the greatest collections of players of all time, which is slightly underrated when it comes to, you know, the job that he did. It was like, yeah. OK, I'll, you well, know... They were self-motivated as a group. I'm sure he set the culture, and I totally understand that, and that all that stuff is important, but... Um, but it's like Alex Ferguson he built a number of eras it wasn't just one great oh, team look, I, I, I guess my point is that um, it, it could actually be harder to manage it might take more time to manage a group who are a little bit more uh, idiosyncratic than that could County hurling team they all came together beat the shit out of each other and were like let's go come on we're on the same team um, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here a little bit but like you had Henry Shefflin and you had Jackie Tyrrell and they were going up against each other like running stags and training every night well, people yeah. weren't watching that and going oh I'm going to I'm going to phone it in tonight <laughs> whereas in other counties that don't have success that don't have those characters you actually have to go and put your arm around them and go why aren't you putting in the full effort today why why, why aren't you filling in your, your diet diary we haven't seen your reps on, on you're not showing us the WhatsApp. What's going on? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There's a lot more. There's a lot more focus on it nowadays. Like it, there is. There is. I suppose for Cody, he and the backroom team is so important. But with Cody, he was such a, a powerful figure in his own right that he that the backroom team was almost peripheral. peripheral. Um, now that's harsh on the backroom team that were there. They obviously did a, did a great job under him. But when there's such a big personality at the head of a of a county like that, I don't know. It's hard. Jim McGinnis was the same in Donegal. Had a great backroom team. Rory Gallagher included. And yet, it was all the focus on, on the manager. I, I don't know why people aren't taking inter-county jobs. I feel like three or four years ago, everyone wanted inter-county jobs, and there was like too many people for the positions, but now it's the com- entire opposite. Um, whether COVID has taught people they're just not arsed with the effort and, and time needed. I, I don't, don't know, know if COVID's taught us anything about anything. I have to say, <laughs> you'd, like, I'm traffic is worse, like, is worse than yeah. it was. People are nastier than they were. Like, I don't, I don't think we've learned anything. As you forget a, pretty quickly. Yeah, like, it's, it's actually worse. It's like, oh, phew, now I'm going to show you my worst characteristics because I was keeping them in for a couple of years. Uh, it's 7.40 if anybody wants to get in touch or if anybody's any theories about this. We're actually forgetting the lead, Ger- um which is the fact that I, I noticed on your Instagram that you were at... Ah, Art Brooks on Sun was it I Saturday? Was, I was. You uh, look. I, I didn't know whether to come in today and, and completely go two footed into this, slag the living daylights out of you. And are you? You were mildly jealous. That, what well, happened was you were starting out in that, and you're like, ah, Jesus, I should have gone. I was just surprised because some people you look at, you're, you're flicking through Instagram stories, and you're like, yeah, obviously everyone's at Garth Brooks. Um, not surprised that they are. Not surprised that they are. But when I landed on your one, I was, you know, Kildare is the wider commuter belt from Dublin. Not many people in that vicinity are known to be people who wear the cowboy hats and the brown shoes and the Budweiser buckle belts and all the rest so that I happen to say it surprised me yeah now maybe you weren't a fa- you're not a fan of Gareth Brooks and you just showed up for the for the. oh I had a check shirt on I had brown boots well, on I had blue jeans I didn't have I didn't have a pair of Wranglers boot cut obviously boot cut I mean uh, I, I mean no unfortunately I've, I, I, and look there were there were Stetsons available I should have gone full Stetson the, the C&T in Marino is um, selling 2014 Stetsons, which literally say 2014 Garth Brooks on them. <laughs> I mean, fair play to them. They're only a fiver. They're only a fiver. And um, oh, you remember I was on the radio last week talking about how, you know, fate. And uh, and Garth was like, um, I haven't brought this. So he cries every you're night. On, you're on first name basis. He cries every night. Yeah, well, he is definitely with himself. Just, it was a weird third party thing going on. It was class. Mm. It was like, it was class. You have yeah, to go, yeah. right? Because there's 60,000 people who are mad into it. 
and every single word they're like they're like hang on his every word he's hanging on their every word and it's so sincere he talks about the sincerity yeah he's likeable normally when you talk about sincerity it's like oh I sincerely mean this <laughs> and no one Hello, ever yeah. Britain yours sincerely you're not sincere if, yeah. you, if you're telling me you're sincere you're not sincere he, yeah. he was sincere as the tears flowed and he did the kind of oh this is my band they've all been with me since 88 and you guys were here in 97 and then I haven't talked about this yet and he starts talking about 2014 and it's like wow this is amazing he's so he's, uh, did he uh, cry oh a lot yeah oh did he oh yeah right one of, the, for it. one of the people who uh, was, <laughs> uh, was there was like Oh, it's five to nine. He's crying again. That's that's amazing. Look, he's right on schedule. Producer called him, asking him in my ear, "Did uh, did you cry yourself?" I did not cry. I mean, I was very happy. I was very happy. <laughs> like it was, it is a, a cultural event that you need to go and see. Yeah, I, I kind of regret it now. Obviously, still have a chance this weekend. I wasn't going to slag you too much because I'm actually buying early bird tickets tomorrow morning for Luke Combs famous American country artist who's playing in the three arena October of next year so you are a country man I'm a country man Just, Garth Garth wasn't someone whose songs look I, I know five or six of his songs they don't speak to you they don't speak to me whereas Luke Combs has Beer Never Broke My Heart uh, another one called Beer Can <laughs> Beer Beer comes up in a lot of these uh, kind of southern uh, American country artists uh, music quite often and I just relate to it you know uh, so relatable um, but uh, yeah Garth just wasn't someone I was madly obviously knew four or five of his songs, but I mean, wasn't a wasn't a super fan, so I, I just couldn't. Like I've been to concerts over the like your entire county were there twice. They were eighteen thousand people, one third of the population. I, like if anyone was going to rob a house in Monaghan, it would have been last weekend or this weekend coming. I'd say I'd say they're all going two or three times to be honest. Probably yeah, but then there's people outside. I was speaking to lads from Monaghan or who are who are living in Dublin and they bought yeah, tickets in Dublin. Of course they they're did, not yeah. even counted in no, those figures. No, no, but so. You, I mean, Tyrone had 26,000 people bought, I think. So, like, I mean, it was between Tyrone and Monaghan. That it's I think Tony Gall, there was a fair, fair representation of Tony Gall, I, I too. I would imagine so. So, it's, it's, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a concert I, I wish... I, I went to Shania Twain a couple of years ago with my mum. Oh, yeah? She, she t- said, I have two tickets to Shania Twain. What she didn't tell me was that the two tickets were slightly separate. So, I was in between a group of two hen parties. Oh, uh, wow. Which was fantastic crack. But Shania Twain... <laughs> Did you survive? I survived just about. But, like, the, the, the male percentage of that gig was, was not that you high. and no one it else. Was just me. Um, but she put on she put on a show Shania She's, she was something else so I'm not against the, the whole country thing but yeah maybe Garth this weekend if I can ah, I think uh, look uh, if you haven't been and you're in any way in two minds because I, I think I, you know there's a, a lot of us were in two minds but it's an incredible show Shane Keegan landed in here for a football Saturday on, on Saturday and he was dressed well he was dressed the normal way a leash man would be dressed probably but he was straight off, buckle but yeah. the, whole, the whole lot and he was, he, was, he was heading to Gareth and, and is it Gareth or Garth? What are we saying here? It's Garth. Garth. Okay. Yeah, party on Wayne, party on Garth. Colm thinks it's Gareth? No, it's not. Sorry, it's Garth. It's definitely Adrian said it's Gareth. It's definitely not Gareth. And okay. um, the the pub Kennedy's in Drumcondra has like uh, uh, Gareth Brooks Lounge. I'm like, lads. I mean, <laughs> did one job? Yeah. <laughs> maybe, what, it's, maybe it's shit posting on purpose. They did it on purpose. Everybody yeah. was like, oh. And then you realise... A lot of people do actually uh, get his name wrong. They do. No, okay, yeah. What, what, like, what I don't understand about the, the Garth Brooks thing, well, you can be a fan all you want, but but um, what I don't understand is why it's such a big cultural... Is it because of 2014? Or was this a thing like... Well, in 2014, he would have the same devotion, if not more. Did anybody here have a ticket for 2014? <laughs> is, it like, is Bruce Springsteen what? on the same level in Ireland? He probably is. Well... Uh, yeah, I'd say they're similar enough level. But like Springsteen's not going to make real in the years. Gareth Brooks 
100% will every year he plays here well, 2014 we, and 2022 we he obviously will. lost our shit over it in 2014 yeah and, I don't, and it, the same thing happened again I think it's because um, a lot of people don't understand it and when you don't understand something you're like what, what explain this to me mm. and then you go and you experience it and it's like I still don't really understand it I see you, you're all having a good time that's like you're, I'm delighted for you <laughs> Yeah, I I feel like I've I feel uh, I I never really feel a sense of FOMO, but I strangely have a sense of FOMO now that I haven't. I mean, you, I, yeah, and that's that's the correct response. So uh, it's not too late. There's I'm, there's loads of tickets floating around. Loads yeah. of people bought like multiple tickets. You know. Yeah. Um, See, my mum's interested in going as well, and she hasn't got a ticket. So now nah, you got to bring her. There you go. It could happen. You're manifesting that out in the world. There. <laughs> Seven forty-six this morning. If you want to get anything off your chest, football related, there is Premier no, Premier League. There's Champions League football tonight. We're going to talk about that with Jonathan Wilson in just a moment. Here's what's coming up between now and ten o'clock. Um, Humphrey Callahart and Gronny McElwain are going to join us at ten past eight. What's this about? So essentially, there's a new uh, documentary on TG Carr tomorrow evening. Um, Skelton Nagurn, I think it's called, and it's the story behind the, the I guess, the GA trophies of the. I think there's 2,000 GA trophies in the country. Right. Some of them have gone missing. They can't find them. Um, but even just the the history behind naming them, and and like obviously there's some famous, I guess, Republican leaders named uh, with trophies named after them. There's some people who we probably haven't heard of that we should have heard of and maybe these trophies are less famous than maybe they need to be um, but there's some fascinating stories behind them I know Humphrey wrote literally wrote the book on trophies as well I think the GEA changed the changed the rules on this earlier this year as well at Congress where they basically said because it was a free-for-all beforehand because I think some club maybe in Tyrone had named a trophy after a, an IRA leader or something to that effect and then they decided okay maybe maybe not for that reason but that was one of the reasons why they decided right, right, the GA subcommittees will put names forward and then one name will be picked and put forward for ratification there's a whole process behind naming trophies whereas it, for years it was kind of a just you know the local county or whoever makes makes the trophy up comes up with a name after that we're going to hear from Derek McGrath that's um, at 8.30 this morning uh, if you have any questions around hurling and you want to get them into Derek now good time for that uh, sports pages and news John Duggan taking a victory lap after um, uh, recommending that you back Shane Larry at the weekend Stephanie Roach is going to join us at 10 past 9 and we're going to hear from Caitlin Thompson about uh, Alcaraz and what we can expect from him uh, for the rest of time um what do you think James McLean is going to do tonight in terms of the armband um, yeah like a lot of people drawing parallels between the armband and the poppy I'm not sure like the poppy obviously and James has been quite clear over, over the years that he doesn't wear the poppy he, he, he has said and I'm paraphrasing him here but he has said that he doesn't wear the poppy because of, like he would happily wear the poppy if it was to represent the the British dead from World War One and Two alone. But, it's but obviously big, yeah. it's not. So um, the armband is just to represent Queen Elizabeth. So I'd, I'd be surprised if he didn't wear it. Not that anyone really cares whether he does or doesn't in this country. They've managed to turn it into a big deal. Right? It, it's always turned into a turned into a story. Like what what I love about the last twenty four hours is hearing for the first time that Morrison's uh, supermarket chain in in Britain has stopped using the the beep sound at the self-checkout in tribute to Her Majesty um, so that was one of the more bizarre tributes I had seen I know there's been an absolute plethora of bizarre ones but that was I think where it reached peak what the hell is going on here uh, there's talk now that um, a lot of medical appointments have been cancelled on Monday because it's become a bank holiday and so people have been waiting for months and months and months for care and then right. they're going to get their care so it's um, it's kind of 
tilting into something a little bit different as well. It's uh, 7.49. If you want to get in touch with us this morning, 087-9180-180 is the WhatsApp number. And uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more on the show. Uh, you can always get us uh, youtube.com forward slash off the ball as well. Now, to uh, the Champions League fixtures tonight. Um, Jurgen Klopp is in the papers talking about the hard truths that the team had to face after getting annihilated against Napoli. I have to do something. I can't sit there and wait for how we react. Is this the situation I wanted? No, but now you're in it, you find it challenging. We had a general meeting showing these situations, and they're too obvious. It wasn't needed to say a lot about it, but I did anyway. <laughs> then it goes on. Did I question the players? Generally, no. In this situation, yes. Why would you do that? Why would we do that? When James Milner arrives too late in a challenge and we lose at challenges where we would usually win, then you know something's wrong. There are four or five days now of absolute truth. We didn't hide anything. We didn't hold back anything. There was no need for that. Tonight's game against Ajax is a very, very big game for Liverpool as a result of the recent performances. Um, I'm delighted to say Jonathan Wilson is with us this morning. Jonathan, good morning to you. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. How are you? This uh, Liverpool game has taken on a very deep meaning after uh, what Klopp is saying and maybe a bit of misinterpretation around his post-match comments about needing to reinvent after the the Napoli game. Um, What do you expect from Liverpool tonight? Well, I think it's a a huge difficult game. I mean, Ajax are playing really, really well. So before anything else, they've got to go try and get three points. They've got to try and get this Champions League campaign up and running. Uh, I think it's pretty difficult for them because they don't really have any players. You know, the the, the injuries have, have hit them to such an extent. It's not it's not as many other players can, can come in. Not, not a lot of things you can change around. And you you look at that side that, that played in Napoli last week, and, and maybe the fact they've had six days off um, that that, you know, that that's given them in in a season when there's not much time, they have been presented with a bit of time to try and try and sort things out. And the fact they've got next weekend off as as well now. Um, it is sort of one game in a fortnight rather than one as a as a series of, of four in a fortnight. Um, but they, they've got to, first and foremost, got to try and find some defensive solidity, which, which they'd lost. Uh, but that comes from the compactness that Klopp was talking about and the fact that the spaces between the, the forward line and the defensive line, which I think he would ideally like to see around about 25, 30 yards, had, 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 had grown... Uh, to an extent where there's loads of space and Napoli could play their way through. And it's not just Napoli. It's not this is a one-off game. Napoli were the team who were really able to exploit that. But I think you saw evidence of that even against Fulham on the opening day of the season. So what is causing the compactness to not be compact anymore? Why does that happen? Well, I, I think we saw it in the pandemic season as well. I think it's, it's just, you know, the, the issues are quite similar. That Suddenly we're seeing uh, Liverpool's defence looks incredibly ropey. And you're looking at Trent Alexander-Arnold saying, well, hang on, we were talking about this this kid as being potentially one of the great right-backs in the world. Uh, but actually, when he's put in defensive pressure, he's not great. Virgil van Dijk, who's been the best centre-back in the Premier League for three or four years, suddenly looks vulnerable. He's given away two penalties already this season. You get a run at him. But the point is, people are getting a run at them. They're getting a run in behind Alexander-Arnold. They're getting a run at van Dijk. It doesn't help Van Dijk. He's had three different partners, which again, like the pandemic season, they, they kept on chopping and changing and, and, and then he got injured as well. The, the injuries have meant they haven't had consistency there. But it, it's it's to do with, I mean, and it's very hard for me outside to know, it's either players are not responding in the way they, they used to, that they, they, they're not putting in that physical and mental effort to enact the pressing systems. Um or it's that fatigue is set in and they're not able to do that. So whether it's a physical issue or a mental issue or some combination of the two, somehow those those very precise, very sophisticated pressing structures, which are so characteristic of Liverpool at their best, they have broken down 
in the way they did in that pandemic season when I think fatigue and a lack of time to put it right was, was pretty obviously the the cause. So this might be to do with the age profile of the squad, which I think we knew was getting older. It might be to do with new players coming in, not quite settling yet. It might just be to do with the fact that Liverpool played an unprecedented number of games last season uh, and a short pre-season, short close season. Um, everybody's still worn out. It might be to do the fact with Jürgen Klopp's in his eighth year at the club and, and eventually the the impact of a manager starts to wear off and no matter how charismatic he is, players start to, start to drift a bit. And I think from the outside, it's very, very hard for us to know what combination of those factors it is. Jonathan, just on that on that fatigue you mentioned, like it's funny now that Liverpool are going to be one of these Premier League clubs with, with essentially a month off Premier League action, um, the way the fixtures have, have panned out. Like, if you're Jurgen Klopp and in his position, it, do you reckon it's a good thing now that they're having this time to reset after a bad period? Or is it a case that when you're playing that badly, you almost want the games to keep coming thick and fast in order to, to correct things? No, I think this is good for them. I think this is really... I mean, it could cause problems down the line later in the season, but things were going pretty badly wrong. And and I think once you get on a spiral like that, it's pretty hard to arrest. Uh, they suddenly do have time to arrest that. So uh, I, I think I think this has probably worked out pretty well for them. It's funny even reading Jamie Carragher's comments in, in I think it was in his Telegraph column in the last day or two as well. Like, he's... He's talking about the obvious things in the Liverpool team, but he, he mentioned James Miller, as you did, Jonathan, but he also mentioned Roberto Firmino uh, starting big games for, for Liverpool this season. Like This is a man in the last year of his deal, obviously playing for either a new contract or a move elsewhere, but uh, like I think Carragher's quote was that he, he's been in decline for the last couple of years, Firmino, and, and all of a sudden he finds himself in this position of starting big games for Liverpool. Like, would you, be, would you go along those kind of similar lines that Firmino is maybe lucky to be in the team or has have his performances so far this season maybe merited that selection I, I think he's been one of their better players this season in a, in a pretty you know, ropey selection but I, I mean really who, who else is it you know, Darwin Nunez has, has been suspended and um, Jota has been injured so you know, in, in that central role there, there is nobody else and, and as I said I think he's he's actually done okay but but you're right he's he's been in decline for a couple of years and, and we saw his influence last season definitely he'd begun to, to wane Um but I mean, I think the, the the whole balance that forward line is problematic now. That you know, you had that front three that was so effective, and, and uh, yeah, the, the the attributes of Mane, Firmino, and Salah they they made each other better, and they worked very well as a unit. Well, as, as soon as you begin to fiddle with that, you 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 damage the balance. So Salah, I think, really hasn't played well since the Cup of Nations. Now that might be the effect of the Cup of Nations that. That was a pretty um, difficult tournament for Egypt. I know they got to the final, but they played pretty horrible football. Uh, Salah was often very, very isolated, you know, up the pitch on the right, often 30, 40 yards of space around him, having to work very, very hard, pretty thanklessly, under huge amounts of pressure from Egyptian fans, Egyptian press. Um, and then to, to lose it on penalties in the final, and then to lose that World Cup playoff to, to also to send a goal on penalties... Uh, yeah, that that would take its toll. Um, I think if you look at his shots per game, the first half of last season, I, th- I think it was around about four point eight per game, and I think it's been something like two point eight since. Um, I, I don't have the figures here, but I, I remember looking it up last week, and it was something like that. It's been a dramatic fall off in his shots per game. Now that's, as I say, partly might be to do with him and his psychological, mental, physical state. But also, the other thing that happened in January was Luis Diaz came in. Now, Luis Diaz, I think by general consent, has done very well. He's settled very quickly. He, he's made a habit of scoring brilliant consolation goals. Um, but 
if you've got him on the left and you move Sadio Mane into the middle or Darwin Nunez as your centre forward, that's a different profile of player to Jota or, or Firmino who would drop out and, yeah. and, and create space for Salah to go into. So Salah, of necessity, is having to play wider. He's not getting into the box as much. That in itself is probably enough to explain that drop-off in shots per game. And, and maybe he's sort of thinking, well, when he signed his new contract, was that really what he was signing up to? to? To not be the main man up front anymore, but to be this auxiliary figure on the right rather than the, the sort of key figure in, in, in that front three. So I, I think I think Liverpool is just in one of those situations where everywhere you look in the team, apart from probably Alisson, there, there are issues, issues with the balance, issues with individuals. Uh, and, and that forward line... Yeah, you can pick out Firmino and say that the fact he's playing suggests the injury problems they've got. You can look at Nunez getting himself suspended, which has frustrated everybody. I think there's been suggestions, um, certainly in Spain and Portugal, that, that Liverpool are starting to wonder whether he really was the player that, that they wanted. I think you look at Salah uh, and, and say he's not playing particularly well. But you can do that in the midfield, you can do that in the in the defence as well. It's a, a mad uh, systems failure from start to finish with, the, as you say, the exception of, of Alisson. Um, while there is a, a little bit of time here, there's also time for the team to stew in the difficulties. And, you know, Klopp is talking about the honesty that they've had. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. It's um, we're, we're, We seem to be at a hinge point anyway, where things could go really badly for the rest of the season. And, you know, when you list off the, the number of problems there are, you can fix one but fixing them all at the same time is going to be very difficult unless somehow Thiago wrestles the team into some kind of greatness on his own. Is that is that like if I'm a Liverpool fan, my eggs are all in the, well, Thiago's back now. Maybe he can start games for us. Well, I mean, yeah, Thiago, I think, is very necessary to give him a bit of guile through midfield and, and he can knit things together. And just the way he holds possession can, can help relieve pressure. So him coming back, not that you can rely on him, I think, to be fit for the rest of the season. I think that is a benefit. I, I, I think, I think though, um, when we talk about all the problems at Liverpool, they're all interrelated. So if you fix one, you do then start to fix others. And I think these things can, just as they fall apart pretty quickly, I think, think they can probably be mended pretty quickly. Say Darwin Nunez suddenly gets on a run and, and scores, you know, I don't know, six goals in the next four games or something. Thiago knits things together. Um, Matip is is fit and and and, and he and Van Dijk you know, re reform that partnership that was so commanding. Then suddenly Alexander Arnold will look a better player and confidence will spread. And if James Milner's not having to play, that that relieves a bit of pressure on midfield. So I I, I think I think the thing with Liverpool, the way they play, and it's in many ways the beauty of how they play, is it is such a and I guess it's true of all all great teams at the moment. It's true of Manchester City as well. These are very fragile, very complex mechanisms. One thing goes wrong and it has a huge ripple effect. But equally, the opposite is true. That if you start to put them right, things can, I think, be mended pretty pretty quickly. Obviously, if they're all knackered, that's a different issue. Yeah, and, and can three days rest actually help a team in the middle of the season enough to allow them to recover the energy that they seem to have been depleted? It's, it's very difficult for us to know. And I guess maybe at the end of the season we'll find out a bit more about it too but um, certainly it's one of the most interesting case studies of the best team in world football over the last 18 months or one of the most exciting teams suddenly becoming very uh, you know ramshackle in in parts that that game against Napoli was like one of those games that I think we're all going to remember for a very long period of time because it could really have been 7-1 
Yeah, it, it could have been. But I think what's really interesting is we, we've seen it before. I mean, don't, don't forget this is a team that lost 7-2 to Aston Villa two seasons ago. So we, we know that when, when things go wrong for Liverpool, they can go really, really badly wrong. Um, I, I, I think I, even more than City, well, no, actually much more than City, uh, Liverpool are a side who, who really play on the edge. Uh, and that's how they've um, overperformed in terms of their their spending. You know that, that's how they're able to to have, to have kept so close to City for so long. City, I think, have a few more built-in safeguards um, that, that, that they can be a bit more cautious. They can hold possession. I think defensively, they're a little bit more circumspect. Uh, whereas Liverpool, it's it's hell for leather. And, and, and if you're playing that high up the pitch, and if you're playing with that level of intensity. And you're trying to overwhelm teams with that intensity. If that intensity drops, or if opponents can find holes within it, they, yeah, you know, there's not much defence there to break through. So you know, we, we saw it collapse two years ago. We saw it put right again last year. So I, I, I don't think the situation is any case in any sense terminal, um, but it is fascinating that it's happening again. And you do wonder how often you can fix that, particularly when you're looking at this season. And it's you know, just game after game after game after game for for months and months into the future. Jonathan, uh, just to touch on the, the the cancellation of the well, I know seven of the ten Premier League games go ahead this weekend, but uh, still we have those few fixtures cancelled. I know that the statements released uh, hinted at the policing issues and, and everything else. Um, like, I, I know you wrote, a, I think it was in Sports Illustrated, maybe you wrote during the week about the fact that you were in a cricket stadium, I think, when, when news were starting to filter through of, of, of the Queen's um, failing health. Uh, and you, you pointed out that maybe a sports stadium is the perfect place for people to pay tribute in their own, in their own little ways. Um, like, are, are you surprised now at this stage where we are looking at the games specifically cancelled this weekend? Maybe you can understand the Chelsea game at half past four on a Sunday evening, the day before the funeral. But then you have United Leeds at in Manchester, a couple of hundred miles uh, up the motorway, being cancelled earlier on a Sunday as well. So it's a bit of a bizarre one. Certainly, people on this side of the the, uh, the sea are trying to make sense of it. But but what's your take on it from over there? Um, I think I think it's actually much more understandable this weekend than, than last. Last, I think there was, yeah, the, the you know, what I was talking about in that Sports Illustrated piece was, uh, I, I think an event like this, it's a national event, and a national event is probably best experienced in public, not not just sitting at home watching it on telly. And and I say this as somebody who is absolutely not a monarch, monarchist, um, but I, I was sort of. I mean, looking forward to is a terrible phrase, but I was sort of sitting there at the Oval watching the rain come down on Thursday, thinking, if the announcement comes this afternoon and I hear it over the tannoy at the Oval with other people and, and hear their reactions, that is going to be incredibly poignant and incredibly memorable. Uh, if I, you know, watching the flag being lowered would have been incredibly poignant and incredibly memorable. Um, I, I was I, I was at the theatre last night and um, because it was a royal theatre, there was a minute silence and God Save the King played after that. And that normally would put my hackles up. But last night I was sort of, like, oh, actually, this is really moving and I will always remember that. And I think we could have had that in football last weekend. I think the policing issues make it unavoidable for certain games this weekend. I mean, I, yeah, South London at the moment um, is is just, just crazy. Uh, I was walking through Westminster and Pimlico last night. Um, so I actually went past Westminster Hall uh, just because that was where I was going. I wasn't going particularly to have a look. And there's barriers everywhere. There's police everywhere. They're talking about queues of maybe up to 20 miles long. Um, 
So obviously that that is a huge drain on policing resources. So I, I think Chelsea, in terms of proximity, plus the fact it's Chelsea Liverpool, obviously takes extra policing. I'm assuming the fact it's Manchester United Leeds, it's just a high high risk fixture. So maybe they have to move in. I, I don't know if they're move, having to move police from Manchester down to London to, to cope with the crowds, or whether normally they move police from London up to Manchester to deal with a game like that. But I, I can understand that. And then the other game is is Brighton Palace, which. Was was it has been cancelled because of rail strikes, and now the rail strikes have been cancelled, but the game was already cancelled before that. So that yeah, that's a pre-existing complication that isn't really to do with the the, the funeral. So I, I think this weekend, the, yeah, the, the the issues of policing. I, I yeah, and I say this obviously some of you no great insight into how policing works, but I can understand that if 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 the police say no, that we can't do this, fair enough. I think the previous weekend was where the mistake was made. There are weekends, <clears throat> pardon me, later in um, March and April, which are kind of contingency weekends when most teams will be out of the FA Cup where they should be able to make up these fixtures. Do you think it's going to be a significant issue down the line? Or actually, you know, if, if, if we'd had a really cold snap and everything had been frozen out for 10 days, they would find a way to make these fixtures work. Well, I mean, this season of all seasons, I think it's going to be really difficult. I mean, I, I know there's the FA Cup weekends, but can you rely on Manchester United, Liverpool, Chelsea all being out of the FA Cup? Uh, yeah, I, I think there's a significant chance they all could still be in the FA Cup come quarterfinal weekend or semi-final weekend. So I, I think, you know, yes, that's a possibility, but you can't can't rely on that. This season, I, I just think we're seeing the, the 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 chaos of the schedule at, at, at the moment. There's just too much in it. That there's no wiggle room. There's no breathing space. The fact the Champions League is coming, yeah, you know, essentially six weeks in a row with an international break stuck in the middle of it. So all six games within within nine weeks. There's there's no space. There's no time to breathe. And what what happens if we do get a cold snap in January? What what happens if it, you know games are called off because of snow or because of frozen pitches? What what if the rail strikes? Um, proliferate which I think there's every chance they could there's, there's nowhere to go so I, I think you're sort of seeing the folly of a fixture of a fixture list that is as rammed as it is quite apart from the impact on on footballers and and, and journalists let's be honest we're all knackered as well um, yeah if, if you have to build in space for some cancellations because whether for weather whether for politics whether for world events whatever you know, games might have to be called off and you, you you want to keep it fair. You don't want teams going for a title or battling relegation, having to play three games in five days or something. We may well be on course for that uh, as the season goes on. There's one last thing I just wanted to ask you about um, from my perspective. You're in the middle of a, a discussion about um, what the definition of a counter-attack is at the moment. <laughs> uh, you've, you've opened a can of worms that maybe you didn't even think was a can of worms in the first place. Well, I... I yeah. So what what happened was I, w- I was saying the three goals Manchester United scored against Arsenal were not dissimilar to the sort of goals they scored on, on against Solskjaer. And I slightly carelessly said counter-attacking goals. What I meant was goals in which you use quick forwards against a high line. But I, I then think it's worth asking what is a counter-attack and indeed what is attacking. And I, I came up against this uh, a few years ago when Louis van Gaal was manager of Manchester United that Louis van Gaal would tell you his teams were very attacking because they always had the ball. So he would say they were proud. If we got the ball, if we got the ball, by definition, we're attacking. Uh, I think it's more complicated than that. And you also see it with with people who uh, think, say, Germany at the 2010 World Cup, because they put four past England and put four past Argentina. Oh, they're a great attacking side. They weren't. They were counter-attacking. They sat deep and they played on the break. They played in transition. But for some reason, the word counter-attack 
has this, um, or maybe not counter-attack, but counter-attacking. If you say you're a counter-attacking team, it's it, it's got the sort of moral quality of something being slightly dubious, yeah. which I don't think there's any reason why that should be. There's, <laughs> there's fundamentally, there's two ways of playing, with the ball and without the ball. Well, and both are fine, for me. Uh, and, and your way of playing can be to try and draw the opposition on and hit the space behind them, or it can be to control possession and control the game that way and try and pick spaces in the way that, say, Spain did at the 2010-2012 World, uh, World Cup and the European Championship. Um, it can be exciting or not exciting, according to the team. But I, I just sort of think we... At- attack is a very, very hard word to define in football. Um, I don't know if it's true or not. I saw on Twitter yesterday somebody was suggesting that it was the anniversary of the famous uh, Brian Clough, Don Revy um, thing. That yeah, it was forty-eight years ago yesterday. Yeah, yeah the, right. whole, the whole notion of uh, we're going to do it better. Um, well, <laughs> you know, uh, well, we won't be counterattacking. We'll be controlling the game. It's like you know, Pep probably feels like there's a moral quality to not being a counterattacking team, but um, the rest of us, as mere mortals, surely we want to win. Yeah, well, I mean, and Clough wanted to win. I mean, look, look at his um, look at his far side that won the league. They they won four 0 away at Old Trafford. I think on was it Boxing Day, seventy seven. And there's a there's a great interview with Peter Taylor after that game. If it wasn't Boxing Day, it was it was December time sometime. Uh, and there's a great interview with with Peter Taylor where somebody you know whoever's doing the interview says, "Oh yeah, that, what a brilliant dominant display." And Peter Taylor goes, "Well, you won't see that again this season." And yeah, they, they, they then just shut up shop, and they they draw an incredible number of games nil nil in the second half of that season because they've already got the lead and they're clinging on to it. So Clough was yeah for all this talk, he was quite happy to kind of um, draw games nil nil if it suited him. But he would do that not by sitting deep, but by holding possession. You look at how Forest won the European Cup; both finals were one nil. There's a lot of one nils, a lot of nil nils in in those European campaigns. So, yeah, he could talk about playing the game in a beautiful way and, and holding possession. Forest could be pretty tedious to watch at times as well. Uh, just finally for me, uh, Jonathan, <clears throat> you have the book uh, out recently, very recently, I think, on the, the, the lives of the, the two Charlton brothers, two brothers, the life and times of Bobby and Jackie Charlton. Like, some great anecdotes, and I know I was reading an interview you did there recently talking about the, the influence of Match of the Day coming on board in 64 and 65, and, and, and I guess... How that catapulted football onto a bigger stage, and that's probably something people of my generation don't appreciate enough, maybe. Um, and I know you've spoken as well about the, I think, was it on stage, the BBC Sports Personality, uh, one year where, where, where Jack spoke spoke very fondly about Bobby. But uh, Jack is obviously someone, especially, who's, who's revered in this country for obvious reasons. Uh, were there any anecdotes or, or, or things you, you even learned yourself uh, about the two brothers over your, your time researching the book? Oh, it was a huge amount. I mean, I, I think. Um, with figures who are as well known as that, there's, there's two slightly different things you're doing with the book, or three. So, so the thing I actually really wanted to do was to put them in a, in a sort of socio-political context, because I realised actually they represent two different strands of British life or British and Irish life in the late 20th century. Um, the, the Bobby, very conservative, very sort of cautious. Jack, much more radical. And I think Jack, you, you can see very much comes through that sort of mid-60s, Howard Wilson, White Heaps technology, you know, scientific systems-driven uh, innovation, um, whereas Bobby was much more of the old school, and, and that's reflected both in football and, and their wider personalities. Then you're also trying to find just new details. And, and um, so, I mean, a, a story that I, I certainly didn't know, and I, I suspect it's not particularly widely known, was when Bobby was manager of Preston, 
which didn't go well. You know, he's in, only in charge for two years. He, he got relegated, couldn't get promoted again. Uh, but the Preston didn't want to sack him. You know, the Preston board didn't want to be the board who sacked Bobby Charlton. So they they sort of contrived the situation to to force him to resign by selling a player called John Bird to to Newcastle. Um, and and the details of that and the the, the sort of the <laughs> slightly bonkers conspiracy. I mean, you know, it almost feels like a sitcom. These sort of, um, you know, these, these business owners in Preston sort of running around trying to trying to manipulate this situation. And what makes it even better is John Bird, who went on actually had a very good career at Newcastle, and he's now um, a gallery owner and painter. He's like you know an artist, a really interesting bloke in his own right. Um, so all, you know that was just stuff I didn't know. And then the the other thing is going through the myths and actually sorting out what's true and what's not. Um, and yeah, Jack is somebody who myths accumulate around and trying to work out what's true and what isn't is can be pretty difficult at times. But hopefully by talking to enough people, I've, I've managed to sort of, uh, sort of work my way through, through those and get to get towards something closer to the truth. Well, hopefully you sell a gazillion copies of it, Jonathan. Great to have you with us this morning. Thanks a million. Cheers, thank you very much. It's uh, Jonathan Wilson there. And I know that um, the Even Show are going to talk to him in greater depth about the book. Uh, in the uh, near, very near future. A reminder, OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. If you want to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. Deja Dude says, the country went nuts for Springsteen in 95. I don't think it was 95 because um, 95 REM played Slane. And he's saying the independent on the day of Slane was wall to wall the boss. I would have said 85. Is that your mastermind subject? The years artists played no, I, I know, I know that because I did my leaving cert in '95. Right, we, right. REM was we were at that. Um, I think Garth was huge at that time too. I, I don't know. I think Deja Dude's having a, a little senior moment there. Uh, Danny Mac one says early '90s Brooks was bigger than Guns N' Roses and Nirvana and Metallic in this country. It was embarrassing. <laughs> I'd say he's probably still bigger uh, than all those two. Um, I did, I did kind of think that maybe he's like the country version of David Gray. Where the country, this was the country that lost its mind for White Ladder. Yeah. 350,000 copies of White Ladder sold. If you sell 15,000 copies in Ireland, you are platinum. He was 25 times platinum with that one album. <laughs> Which is pretty incredible. It's like the our current generation, a lot of people maybe get manic over the likes of Harry Styles. But I feel like Garth Brooks is the Harry, Harry Styles for... I don't want to say your generation, Jerry, but, but Colchies essentially. You, you, your people. But see, I, I have a very, I have a very strange um, personality trait, or not personality trait, but uh, oh, you do. Well, I do, yeah. Anyway, but like I'm a Tony from the country. All right, so yeah. I'm actually a Tony when I'm in. So you, look, you look down on the other people of Monaghan. <laughs> well, you see, this is the problem. Everyone in Dublin thinks I'm a Colchie, and everyone in Monaghan. Oh, we know you're a Colchie at heart, though. Well, I am, surely. Yeah, I love the, <laughs> I love the brown boots and the, the country music. So. Uh, yeah, long mail. I went to Willie Nelson in Austin once, which was one of the highlights of my career. Well, that's my, right. my life, sorry. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's totally loud. A uh, reminder, Braeburn Coffee is the official coffee partner for OTB. Each week, we give one lucky viewer a €100 Euro voucher to spend on some Braeburn Coffee goodness at an Apple Green store near you. To enter, check out at Off The Ball on Twitter. Like and retweet our Braeburn competition post, and you'll be in the draw. Braeburn Coffee never compromises on quality or taste to give you the best on-the-go experience on the road. Available at Apple Green today. OTB. Now, tomorrow night around about half past eight on TG Gower, a new six-part series presented by Gráinne McElwain called Schilt and the Gorn will uh, travel across Ireland visiting clubs and county grounds, getting the stories of the trophies. It's based on uh, the book GA Family Silver by Humphrey Keller. I'm delighted to say Gráinne and Humphrey are both with us this morning. Uh, Gráinne, good morning to you. How are you? 
Good morning, Jer and Shane and Humphrey. How are you keeping? All very well. Thanks very much. Good, good. Lovely good. to see you again, Gráinne. I like, likewise. Good to see you too. Where did the idea for this come from, Gráinne? Well, this H- Hannah Niguhan is the producer in Imagine Media who was working uh, tirelessly on this series. And she and Humphrey got in contact with each other. And obviously, Humphrey has written a fabulous book about the family silver which has been a Bible basically for the series too, in that we have used a lot of those cups and we've looked at a lot of those cups around the different counties. And also Hannah did loads of research as well and finding different cups and personal stories behind the the cups as well in the series. So there are over 2,000 pieces of GA silverware, Ger, um, which is huge. So we haven't managed to put all of those cups into this series. So hopefully there's enough interest that we'll be doing a second series on this. But it's been a fabulous, fabulous journey. And I've loved every minute of filming it and finding out the history and the stories behind these cups. Alfie, why did you write the book? What was what was it that made you think there's enough here? Well, interestingly enough, Ger, I was doing commentary on the 2009 Leinster Horney final with the great Michal Meraherty. And the minor match was just over and they're presenting the minor cup to the minor captain from Kikini. And Con Murphy, if you remember, Con said to me, what's the name of the cup? I said, I don't know. Went to Crow Park, asked him, Are there, is there a book on the cups? And they said, no. So I decided, well, I'd write it. And I decided to write 101 cups, not just necessarily on hurling, it was on about camogie, ladies football, shinty, pokfada, and the whole lot. And uh, that is what's really, I suppose, as uh, Grania alluded to there, it could be nearly the definitive book on uh, the GA Cups and Trophies. Um, one of the things you were saying there in the ad break was that um, there wasn't a cup for a long time for the All-Ireland Senior Football. football. Yeah. So yeah. what happened? What happened was that the Great Southern and Western Railways, <coughs> a railway company who obviously had money at the time, uh, presented two cups for hurling and football. And there was a stipulation that if you won the cup two years in a row, you could keep it. And in football, uh, Kerry were the first team, uh, played won it twice in a row. And then Wexford, great Wexford team, came along and won it twice in a row. In fact, they won it four times, but they had it twice in a row. So I think the great Southern Western Railway said, well, we're not going to present any more cups because they were quite expensive at the time. So they were presenting medals. And my uh, view is that in 1927, <coughs> timing was quite interesting that the FA Cup final was on and a man called Tom Farkinson from Glasnevin was the goalkeeper for Cardiff City who beat Arsenal in the final. And that match was shown on Pathy News in the cinemas. And they saw the presentation of the trophy on the stand in, I presume it's Wembley. And uh, they said, well, maybe we better do something again about football so they formed a committee so they got a bit jealous of seeing a dub up there carrying the cup and they're like I want a bit of that absolutely and you know uh, when you look it's just literally that year they set up a committee to uh, uh, because um, Sam McGuire had died and to commemorate his memory they actually created this uh, uh, committee and raised money and got the cup made it's funny, Grania, because like when, when you're, I assume in your research for, for the, for the um, show, you're looking at a lot of periphery figures that maybe we, we haven't heard of but should have heard of. Like one of, one of them that jumped out to me was Kathleen Mills, who is one of the Camogie greats in this country, and yet her name probably isn't as recognised as perhaps it should or could be. But I'm sure there were plenty of examples along those lines across the, the research for the show. There were huge examples of that, Jane, and th- that's what really struck me as well, is that most people know the names of the cups, but they don't as- necessarily know the reason why 
they were named after that person and also the connection that it has with our past. So, you know, the GE has a connection with the revolutionary past, obviously our cultural revival, um, mythology, all, all these different aspects of our culture that is reflected in our cup. So you have all these massive grits of, of Irish history, but you also have normal people and people that devoted a lifetime of service to the GEA who volunteered to do everything. And each of us that are involved in GEA clubs know someone like that who does everything in the club when asked to do that for years. And I thought that was a lovely um, part of the programme as well, Adam, um, that the Cups are named after volunteers that gave a, a dedicated their lifetime to the GEA. And it was it was remembering these people. And I think that's really important that as we have that connection with their past, but you remember who, who these people were and also the effect that it has on their families. Because when someone raises the, the JJ Nestor Cup or the Owen Ward Cup, um, people, you know, they raise the cup and they go, great, we've won a, a league championship or a county title or whatever. But also for the families, it's like, well, they remember who that person was that they loved the most. And that was really telling in a lot of cases when we spoke to brothers and, and mothers and, and relatives. They just said, like, they're so proud that a cup has been named after um, the per- that person, that family member, and that just remembers their memory too. So that really struck with struck with me as well throughout the series that it's it's more than just just raising a cup of piece of silverware that there's actually a massive connection that people have with um, with their families too. That was a really lovely part of the journey that I was on as well. That was very interesting, Gráinne, because uh, there's one stands out particularly is uh, uh, Shane McGettigan, who'd be the son of Charlie McGettigan, who won the Eurovision Song Contest. And Shane was uh, played for Leitrim and he was over in Boston and he was up in the scaffolding and working and the scaffolding collapsed and uh, the poor man died. He was only 21 years of age. And then, of course, there's Cormac McAnallen, uh, who died, uh, you know, the heart situation. And uh, there's a couple named after him. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the memory of the people, as time goes on, less and less people know about those people, as Gronje said. And this is what I believe is the marvellous reason why this, you know, program has been made and, and, and to recall those people and keep them in the minds and, and hearts of people. You're in Monaghan in episode two, of course, the Monaghan takeover continues. Exactly. Rightly so, rightly so. <laughs> rightly so, exactly. I couldn't get it started in episode one, Shane, so we start, we're in episode two. Anyhow. Not bad, not bad. Not bad. No, it was great. I mean, obviously, another thing as well is that we have that connection with our immigrants as well and, and so many people that have emigrated and that love that they have for the GEA, which we stay, see still today in all the overseas action of GEA. But a lot of people that would have went abroad, like the Omar Cup, for example, I think that was 1930 that that was presented by Owen Ward, who's from Annie Alla, um, in Monaghan. And he was working in London and came up with the money and presented that cup. It was the Monaghan Cup. Um, and similar to what Humphrey was saying about cups, and the, there was a stipulation with this cup is that if whatever team won it three times, we're allowed to keep it. Of course, people thought, sure, no one's going to win this cup three times in a row. And it, it wasn't my beloved Scastown that did it that time, but it was actually Dunamoyne who won it three times in a row. So they were allowed to keep the cup. So the county board were going, OK, well, hang on a second. We can't we can't have this happening or we're not going to have any cups. So basically they changed it then to the own Ward Cup and it was um, an annual cup that you had to give back. So there's a lot of those stories as well in the series, um, lads, too. You know, that people that went abroad and raised money for medals and for cups and presented them back to county boards. So there's a link also with um, all the people that went abroad and continued to work entirely for the GEA in their adopted home country, but also that connection they always had 
with home, which we all still have, even though you might have left the area that you're from, the club that you're from, um, you always have that massive pull and that massive connection to it. So that's that's a feature in the series as well. But Monham was great. Like we look at rounders, there's massive rounders um, in Carrick Macross as well. You know, we, we look at that too. And then Pauline Devlin, you know, she was a, a fabulous lady who um, was involved, actually was my teacher actually in St. Louis in secondary school. She was a PE teacher when I was in Monaghan and she was a gorgeous woman from Casa Blaney who was a camogie player but died very, very young and um, there was a cup named after her as well and she started football for uh, for girls in, in Casa Blaney. So there's loads of different stories as well and, and Pork Duffy, of course, his dad is the McDuffie Cup um, is named after his father. So we speak to Pork and the cup that came before the McDuffie Cup was the American Cup which is really interesting. And it was actually for the Senior County Championship as well. It's retired now in the museum. So there's lots of the Cups that have been retired that people have never heard about. Like I hadn't heard of the American Cup. Um, obviously, you know the McDuffie Cup very well, but just find that connection really, really interesting as well. And and obviously, Scott and I have been lucky enough to have I've hoisted the McDuffie Cup on, on numerous occasions. So again, it's just a lovely connection for Pork and you see how proud he is, you know, when that cup is raised and that connection with his dad. So there was a lovely theme throughout the whole story and throughout the whole series, and I really enjoyed it. One of the other themes here is that you've talked about people who have passed away. Is there a stipulation around that? or How, how do they name cups, Humphrey? Well, there's a variety of different names on cups. Uh, in the early days, uh, the GA didn't really have any money, so they, they went to the clergy. Uh, you have the Harty Cup, you have the McGean Cup, you have McCrory Cup. And, uh, were they, and all, they were all clergymen, were they? They were all clergymen because right. they were the people who had the money. And also they went to the newspapers, the Irish Press Cup, Irish Independent Cup, Irish, uh, the anglo Celtic, you know, for the Ulster Senior Football Championship. And they were very limited in how they could actually get the money. But nowadays it's much more, you know, they have, they have the money uh, now. And obviously the Nicky Racker Cup, uh, the, 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 the Lowry Mar Cup and, uh, and Chris Ring. So they have those. But what I would, what, what I, what people t- tend to maybe not to, to bring into account is the, the design of the cup, the layout of the cup, the maker of the cup, the degree of intricate design that's in those cups. And people must keep in mind the people who made the cups, especially the big cups, the Sam Maguire's and the Lee McCarthy cups. They're a tremendous time. And there's a huge, I suppose, uh, influence of the, you know, the, the Huguenots uh, when they, the, 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 who were thrown out of France back in the 1600s because the Stauntons, who made the Sam Maguire and the Lee McCarthy and the National Football League Cup, they were part of that uh, people uh, that, uh, that came to uh, Ireland in the 1600s. So they brought over the silversmith skills right. okay. into this country and that's where it really all started so that's people have to remember so those things into so the we, history of the, the country as well but do you have to be dead to get a cup named after you? <laughs> well <laughs> I don't think people want to die and get a cup named after them but it certainly does help but then all, I think there is a rule within the J that you're not allowed but the uh, the latest football and of course the latest did change it where the Camogie Cup uh, uh, and, 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 and the Brendan Martin Cup thankfully both of those people are still alive it's funny, Gronya, because I was reading into um, the episode three where you where go to Antrim as well, and, and John Goff is a name probably unfamiliar to most people, but the referee for that famous 1983 Ireland football final when the Dubs beat Galway, the Twelve Apostles. Um, I think Brian Mullins hasn't spoken to John probably <laughs> since that day, but like it's so interesting because you're you're hearing stories about people like John Goff, um, and what people don't realise is there's silverware for referees as well, which is something that I yeah. hadn't considered. Yeah, exactly, Shane. I was the exact same. I didn't realise that referees actually get a medal as well, an All-Ireland medal, when they um, do the All-Ireland final, which is 
actually why wouldn't they it's a lovely touch so yeah he spoke about that and he had her, he had his medal and he showed it so he goes through all that the incident of what happened and still firmly maintains he was dead right sending off those players and when you look back at the footage I think it's kind of hard to argue as well it was a tough tough game to referee but again you know you know the, the eyes of the public everybody's watching you referee the game there's a lot of pressure on referees and as we do know um, how difficult of a job it is. Um, it hasn't changed in that way, being very difficult. So an absolute gent of a man to speak with. And he was very proud, obviously, of, of his refereeing career and, and getting that medal. But it was a tough, tough um, game to referee in an All-Ireland final, without a doubt. It's funny because, uh, Humphrey, I was, I was listening to an interview Grania had done previously where she was talking about the hope that maybe they could find some of the, the missing silverware. Like, everyone knows the story of Jules Rimet trophy and was it Pickles the dog that found the, dog, the trophy yes. eventually? But, like, th- there's a lot of GEA trophies that... that haven't been uh, discovered in years maybe the hope is that this, this documentary could lead to at least some discoveries I'm sure there's some in people's attics don't realise how important it is to, to keep those cups and the museum in Crow Park is a marvellous job in, in getting some of those back but when you look up across the whole spectrum of the GEA uh, the, 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 the great thrill of the, the player going up onto the stand and getting that cup and saying the immortal words to Anas Orum and Conchar Glaka is something that everybody wants to do and pick up that cup. And it's a very sad situation in fact, back in 1964 when the uh, All Ireland Minor uh, Hurling Cup was, 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 the final was on in Leinster, and uh, sorry, the Leinster final, and Leash beat Kilkenny in the final. But Wakeford, who were the winners previous year, didn't bring the cup. No, oh, no. So the Leash captain, uh, uh, Billy Phelan was his name, never got the opportunity to go up that step and say those immortal words. And Leash haven't been there since. So it shows the importance. But I think uh, uh, he did get the cup eventually, I think, <laughs> later on, but not on the day. So the cup has a huge part to play in people's tradition. And it's interesting if you ever watch the um, series or the, the, the All Ireland finals and watching. The cup being presented by the uh, presidents, how the captains re- take the cup. It's amazing the different types of people grab the cup, people pick up the cup without being presented. And I see at the moment Larry McCarthy, who's the present uh, president, Octoron, ensures that he gets the shake hand of the captain and present him with the cup. Many di- for, for many years, the, the captain of the team got a miniature replica. Of the for themselves, for themselves, right? Which was a great thing to have, but I don't think to do that anymore. It's funny because I was reading in the different names um, of the, of the, the, I guess the main provincial tournaments in 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 Ireland. But am I right in saying the Munster Senior Football Championship has no has no official name for the, for the trophy? Or the Munster Junior Football, and this year or last year, I think it was that uh, in yeah, twenty twenty two they decided to, uh, to to name this Munster Senior Hurling Cup after the great Mick Mackey. So there are a number of cups with no names on them, and I asked the reason why at the time. They said just politics, right? Basically, who would they call? Well, they, I presume it's it's all politics about who who are you, what current group decides who is worthy of having a cup named after them. Um, it is interesting that um, the. LGFA and the Camogie have cups named after the people who presented them. Yes, indeed. Jack McGrath's the cup, that, and he's still alive in Cork and alive and well, thank God. So it, 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 maybe they'll change. Uh, uh, people do deserve it, but there are people who have passed away that certainly would deserve to be called uh, the, the, the Munster Senior Football Cup. It would be a great, uh, uh, I suppose, honour for their family to have the cup named after them. Um, but- Go on, Grant, sorry. So just coming here, just in Monaghan, actually, when you're talking about, because ladies' football, um, Colosh de Oriel presented three cups, the Ulster Colleges um, football um, scene, and there are three cups that are named after McInespies, the huge ladies' football families, McInespies, the Courtney's, and um, McNally Cups. 
So in that, um, Breach McNally is one of the students in Colossal at the time she was getting that cup and she's obviously from that McNally family. So it was just really interesting. I've never met anyone really that have, has got a cup that is basically about themselves, you know? So it was just interesting chatting to her about what it was like to get a cup that's named after your family. So well, it's interesting in that, Grania, there is one man after whom three cups are named and it's the Leinster Minor Football, the Ulster Minor Football and the Loud Minor Football Cup are all named after the same man. Father Murray. So, you know. and that's a, and actually that features in our Donegal episode as well, um, Lorcan and Murray. And and I think as when we're talking about the clergy too, um, you know, they did a lot of work in the area, and he was credited for bringing like electricity and water, running water up to Ranafast area up in Donegal as well in the Gaeltacht. So like he has have three cups exactly. There's not too many people that have three cups named after them, and he he features in our in the our Donegal episode. It's Father it's, Lorcan and Murray. It's my granny because you, you see trophies named after like. I suppose famous Republican leaders in, in Antrim like Roger Casement I think and Terence McSweeney former Lord Mayor of Cork has a trophy as well but then you see and I saw names in the in the blurb for the for the series as well like the Little Nora Cup in, yeah. in, in Cork like what's the history behind that one for example? That's a great story um, that was a cup there's a man called Tom Lyons who's written a book about it down in Cork and we um, interview him and Thomas from Dunmanway and he basically wants to find this little cup. I'm not going to go into, you'll have to watch the whole, you'll have to watch the program, Shane. I won't go into the whole history of who little Nora was and, and what she was. But anyway, um, Tom was, was, um, writing a book about her and he was looking for the cup. He wanted to present the cup at his launch of the book. And nobody, nobody knew where the cup was. The cup was supposed to be in a bank vault. The cup was supposed to be really safe and everywhere. Nobody could find it. So what he did is most traditional Irish way. What we did, he wrote a, he wrote a column in his local newspaper. And he said, look, I'm looking for this cup. Does anyone know where this cup is? And within 24 hours, a young lad had said to his dad, do you know what, dad? I think that cup's under my bed. (laughs) So basically he got the cup and the cup was reunited in time for the launch. So it was a little Nora cup and it had been down in, in, in Cork and um, for nearly 50 years. And basically it was, it was a happy ending to it. But as we were, as Humphrey was saying earlier on, there's a few cups in the series that are still missing. And I just hope that when people see this, it'll jog their memory. Like one of them is the Inky Flaherty Cup in Galway. And basically it's, it started, it's for the Connacht Senior Hurling Cup. It was in 1995 and it went missing in 1999. And the competition stopped because just of lack of interest, um, in, in, in Connacht for this competition. So, but the cup is missing and we'd love to find that cup. So somebody has that cup. Galway were the last recipient. So yeah. somewhere, somewhere has that cup. So in, it'd be great if we could find bed. it. Yeah. Under students' bed somewhere or, Tomorrow, I don't know. Night, tomorrow night, half past eight on TG Car. Grania and Humphrey, thanks a million for joining us this morning. Um, I think uh, loads of people are going to have memories jogged, hopefully, and also uh, learn a lot about our history. Thanks a million for uh, for joining us this morning. Best of luck with the TV series. Thank you very much. Right. My good lads. OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish today. Up next, we're talking with Derek McGrath. First, here's a quick um, few thoughts on Roy McIlroy's current form. It was just an amazing last hour in particular there when Ram had set the early target with 62 and you knew that Lowry and McElroy had scoring holes to finish with yeah. and could they catch him and how would things play out between the two of them and McElroy missed a put on 18 for Eagle which oh, just ordinarily that would fall the other way I, like, he was bemused and it was there was a lovely moment afterwards where you could the mics were there and you could hear Shane Lowry and McElroy talking to each other afterwards and Lowry said I don't know how that put dropped and then they were slagging each other and McElroy had beaten Lowry at Wentworth in 2014 in similar kind of fashion mm-hmm. and so uh, I think Lowry said to McElroy it's one all as in, in our Wentworth uh, duels and he said to Rory you've won enough and McElroy was very happy for him kind of made a real point of running down to give him a hug but like for Irish golf 
it was Unreal. an amazing thing. This is the flagship event. Wentworth on the European Tour it was the best um, European Tour competition in in quite some time that I can remember. And I think Larry is right when he says he's playing the best golf of his career this year. I think, and it's it's odd-ish to say it, given he hasn't won a major, but I think McElroy is actually playing the he best golf be. of his career at the moment as in well. In terms of consistency, and yeah. every time I turn on golf at the moment, Rory McElroy is like striking the ball beautifully. His yeah. putting seems to be, you can you know this better than me, but his putting seems like, in terms of consistency, seems like it's up there with where he's never been before, almost. He looks like he enjoys putting again, mm. which you haven't said about McElroy for a very long time, and that's Brad Faxon's effect. And then the key thing is, last year with his wedge play, genuinely like 200th on tour wow and now he's up to like number one or two yeah, yeah. Play. it's been like a transformation so Humphrey uh, Keller left his book behind and pointed out the CJ Hawhey Cup <laughs> the presentation of a trophy in 1976 by Charlie Hawhey to Corla Clehacor helped set up a senior women's rounders championship I didn't realise this but uh, Hawhey played for Vincent's minor hurling in football and won in right. 42 and then also played for Parnells when they won the 45 senior championship it's like what so he switched clubs <laughs> Shane Walsh of the, uh, of the past yeah and, and like it's just down the road you know so maybe when he moved out to the mansion the, that was uh, you know Parnells was closer I'm not sure too many other people in that Parnells team would have been living in mansions or owning islands yeah it's funny the, the, trophy, the trophies is something that we absolutely do not think about we just trophies are handed off to players and captains and we, we just leave it there and never think about them ever again but yeah you forget that there's names and histories and stories behind each and every single one so fascinating story OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish today we're going to talk hurling with Derek McGrath in just a moment if there's anything you'd like to talk to us about this morning we would love to hear from you um, the Liverpool fans are a little bit concerned about what might happen tonight uh, interested to see if um Jurgen Klopp can work a miracle in four or five days. We'll see. Delighted to say Derek McGrath is with us. Derek, good morning to you. How are you getting on? Morning, lads. How are you doing? Yeah, very good, very good. Um, uh, there's a, a couple of things we wanted to talk to you about. The, the situation um, generally in hurling at the moment. Um, Big Dan announced that he was retiring from all hurling uh, during the week as well. And we thought we may take a moment to just... Cause it, He's kind of one of those figures who um, transcends his local county and becomes a, a national icon. And there's not that many hurlers who manage to do that. So, um, what was he like to work with? First of all, I suppose he's 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 done it all in the game. I, I was lucky enough to play with Dan even as a man in '94 and played with him under 21 for three years. And obviously, he went on to have a very successful career in '98 when Dan probably. You know, came to kind of national prominence in terms of you know the the '98, the famous monster final of '98. So to work with him as a first of all and first and foremost as a player growing up, started off obviously as this kind of young gangly. Uh, I would have always said when we were playing him, level even that he was he was nervy at that stage. You know, we we kind of thought we would have been able to get to him, but that when he got to seventeen, eighteen, obviously you know he was brilliant in the air and. And obviously, 2007 saw him kind of win hurler of the year, so he was a brilliant guy in terms of working with him. We're just having a bit of trouble with the line there, so we, we might come back to you and see if we can get a, a slightly better connection for for two seconds, just to make sure that everybody can actually um, hear that. Um, so yeah, I, I, one of the things I think um, I, I think Dan is kind of in that um, period where uh, players still didn't have helmets, yeah, and, and kind of just goes over that period where it was just easier for um, I don't know not easier like obviously uh, but to be super recognisable as an individual yeah he, de- he certainly transcended his sport as well as his county and like 
the fact that he's I didn't realise he was 45 now looks well for 45 but even to be playing for, for this more at 45 you might say oh that's grand it's club, it's club hurling but still a high quality level of, of, of championship I think he said maybe after his retirement to WLR that he, he played maybe a year of junior club a year of intermediate club and ever since it's been senior club championship for, for his club so I mean he's he's been playing at a high level not just at Intercounty but at club level since and, and the fact that he's 45 and has still been doing it um, quite remarkable and I know the news has, has come in today or yesterday that he's, he's going to be joining the Leash backroom staff I think as well nice. with Willie Maher so uh, he will be kept busy in the. In, but I think it's not it's not the last we'll be seeing of Dan Shanahan certainly he'll be in an Intercounty job at some stage We've got Derek McGrath back with us sorry Derek you were just saying to, to bring him in as part of your backroom team Yeah and look look I suppose the insecurity I, I would have had, I suppose, as a manager is the fact you didn't have a kind of this prominent inter-county career. So who do you go to in Waterford? So look, you go to friends first and foremost. But he was, having done all he had done in the game, there was never a sense when he was imparting information of kind of, you know, boastfulness or anything like that. He's, you know, people see Dan and they see the tattoos and they see and they kind of judge from afar. But he's a very affable, very, you know, very nice guy, you know what I mean? And very, very gentle fellow in actual facts. Really, really gentle man around the, around the group. But, um, you know, in, in an era where, with Justin McCarthy, where he was ghosting in for goals, and, you know, you talk about the Lar Corbett movement under Eamon O'Shea, I think Dan was kind of ahead of the game when it came to kind of movement off the ball and, and kind of, as I said, ghosting in for goals. And he would be very good at imparting all that information. Even at the weekend there, he was involved with colleague and junior team they had they bridged the gap winning the junior here in Waterford for the last 37 years they hadn't won it he was involved I think it's it's it, he's going to be involved with Willie Maher in, in Leash now as part of the backroom team and you know he's, he's look he'd be a brilliant addition brilliant coach brilliant skills coach in particular you know in terms of the speed of your hurling loves it and hugely dedicated to the game and, and to Lismore particularly it, it, Derek I was actually listening on uh, Sunday's show Brian Kerr and Kenny Cunningham were in studio here with Joe and Brian mm-hmm. was, was sitting in this talking about Kenny right beside him about the leadership qualities he possessed and, and why he picked him maybe as a or why he was a captain for the Republic of Ireland like as you as someone who played alongside Dan uh, bringing him into your own backroom team as well like you must have seen some leadership qualities that he possessed and, and clearly that was something that, that was one of his strong points well he has look what's, what's needed in Waterford often is he has passion anyway first of all he actually loves Waterford he loves Liz Moore so there's a pureness there to, to what he's doing and, and almost an innocence at times if, if that makes sense you know in terms of the you know he, he kind of when you look at him physically he's obviously this imposing specimen as I said already it's just the, the whole ability to be able to impart stuff in a manner that's very ordinary like very ordinary and, and huge passion and sometimes you know that's needed on, on a line and, and over the years we, we were kind of you know he, he's, he's very funny too Dan, Dan is you know is, is great, a great wit about him a great kind of sense of kind of what's on the ground in terms of what's been said in, in both Lismore and Dungarvan or in West Waterford in general he's you know he'd feed that information without without it becoming kind of overburdening you know he works on, on an oil oil truck and people you know People love to see him coming to the to the to their houses, like to fill to fill the tank, if you like, because he, you know he's he just as I said has that kind of affable kind of you know lovely character, if you like, and he might go in there after a good or a bad day with Waterford either as a player or a selector, and he's the same kind of jovial self, and that's difficult in itself. So he's you know he's made, he's been able to manage that over the years in terms of being you know a kind of a, a local, um, you know he's been, he's been able to manage that kind of characteristic of his own kind of personality that you know he's able to kind of you know take the criticism, take take the good times, and and you know, somewhere in between lies his character, which is a really good character. Yeah, totally. Didn't Christy Ring do the same thing? Am I right in saying that? Was he, it's, there's, right. there's a long line of um, 
of um, yeah. And look, and I, I think I heard Shane talking about the fact that he's playing senior hurling. Like he's Mark Connor Prunty. He's Mark. Barry Cochran, he's he's not the best of full backs in Waterford and, and held his own over the last number of years as well. So it wasn't wasn't just a case of kind of standing there on the edge of the square. He's he's been well able and he's contributed greatly to Lismore over the last number of years. Yeah, no doubt. Can I ask you about um your own uh, managerial career? What what stage are you at at the moment? Are you happy to be out of the game? Are you like having taken the lessons of the last number of years, uh processed them and ready to go again? What what where do you stand at the moment? Yeah, good, good question. I thought you might ask. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I suppose I left it in two eighteen. Since then, I've kind of, I suppose, I've been involved with like, last two or three years. I've been involved with with Leeds Miners. We had a, with a great success last year, getting to the getting to the Leinster final for the first time in a number of years. So, look, I've enjoyed that. I suppose I've enjoyed the not the less pressurised environment of kind of almost a kind of a sub role or a role in the background. Um, my own young lad, my young oldest boy, has gone into fifth year here in in De La Salle and played in the school. So. The plan, I suppose, at family level was as much as possible to kind of maybe get through him, him through the leaving cert. Not that I'm directly involved in his leaving cert or anything like that, but just, I suppose, in terms of the, the family environment, you're hoping to kind of maybe my youngest boy then would be kind of heading into De La Salle College in first year. So the, the plan was hopefully to not stay out of it for another couple of years, not that you can't pick and choose um, where you're going to be or you have no divine right to be involved in any team at that level. So, yeah, I'm I'm in the middle, I suppose, of trying, I suppose, to get better and learn from it. I'm heartened by the way the game has, has gone, believe it or not. I know people would probably say the opposite itself, but I'm heartened that, you know, things that perhaps that we were involved with integrating over the years in terms of tactically are now part and parcel of the game. So I'm heartened in terms of where the game is going and where it will continue to go. So I'm thinking strongly about being involved over the next couple of years, but I suppose the opportunity has to be right and family life in particular has to be has to allow it to happen if you like. Not that my wife would in any way stop me, but I suppose it's your own personality wanting to contribute at home as well, you know. Your your name invariably Derek comes up when, when big intercounty jobs I think the Dublin and Waterford jobs particularly this summer, you know, your name was, was certainly mentioned in the rumour mill uh, before those those jobs were, were filled. Like is it the case and myself and Jer <coughs> excuse me, myself and Jer spoke at the top of the show about how, you know, Monaghan and Donegal and Ross Common can't seem to find a manager this summer and to to replace their outgoing manager is it a case that the, the club game and the the lack of, of public focus and, and pressure, um, you know, in club game compared to the intercounty game, just just puts a lot of people off at the minute? Yeah, hard to know. I, look, I'm, I can only speak personally in that. In that, you know, I found it. You know, you, you listen. Not that I'm comparing myself to Brian O'Driscoll, right? Like, but you listen to the aftermath of someone that's involved at the level O'Driscoll was involved in over the years and, and the struggles. I don't think I struggled, but what 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 you do is you miss. I'm speaking personally, you miss the busyness of it, you miss the pressure of it, in actual fact. And, and that sounds counterintuitive to say that. So for me personally, no, I, you know, I don't think the appeal of the club championship is, on a personal level, is, is that, like, oh, it's, it's less hassle and it's less stress, etc. For me, it probably suits at this particular time in your life, but I think there's no buzz like being involved in an, in an inter-county dressing room at, at, at a particular level that you're, you're not you're used to, you're accustomed to. But I can imagine that it's probably the scenario where, you know, Post Andy McEntee's retirement from Mead, you know, even pre Colin O'Rourke's appointment in 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 Mead as well, where they both spoke about, you know, the the level of scrutiny, the level of kind of you know, discussion that goes around, the level of kind of rumor and innuendo, and I, I don't think you learn to live with that, but I think we're getting better at that, if you like, in terms of the management of you kind of live in your own bubble of of listen, we're we're giving it everything we have, and 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 certainly that's the way I would have kind of approached it over the years I would have been you know less sensitive as the years went through it and I think now that you're out of it I become even more kind of you know not as sensitive to, to kind of criticism or, or that I think it's, you just get used to it and you kind of move on but that's 
that's not for everyone, you know. Could you manage outside Waterford, do you think, like on a, a personal level, you know, would you have the enthusiasm and would you be able to do it? Yeah, that's, that's a good question because you kind of, you know, and, and I think it, it's probably well versed, if you like, that I had a, you know, a serious connection with the players over the years and in order to kind of not sever that connection, the last number of years I've actually, I'd say I've been almost kind of nomadic in terms of my connection with, with the players that I was centrally involved with in that I, you know, I didn't text it for fear that you'd kind of accused of being behind the scenes or kind of hanging over them, etc. So, yet, yet when when you know when the Watford job came up this summer, you kind of you talk about it with your wife for a minute. You kind of say, "Will you?" You know, six, seven, or eight years ago, I got my club to nominate me. I, I go around about the whole process because you want to do it. And now you're kind of contemplating, kind of saying to yourself, "Look, not now. Uh, you've no divine right to do it, but also you, the connection is pulling you. I suppose in terms of the players." that are involved still centrally to the team. So to answer your question in terms of being involved with another team, the answer is, is, is probably, probably yes, but I think you'd, you'd probably have to change your methodologies. You know, in terms of connection over the years, for me, was based on my school connection with a lot of those boys that were central to the Waterford thing. And you're in Waterford, you're living in Waterford, you love the players, you love what you're doing. You'd have to really work hard on that connection part that's, that's part of any manager's philosophy. But that, that could be achieved too. So yeah, I, I, I wouldn't rule it out, certainly, yeah. Um, Derek, just want to get your thoughts, I suppose, on, on, on the man who did get the Waterford job, David Fitzgerald. And I know Peter Quigley and, and Owen Kelly have gone in there and his backroom team as well. That's come out in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and I know you had high hopes for this Waterford team last year and, and maybe it didn't materialise in the end yeah. for them, but there's still a lot of talent in that squad. Uh, how do you expect David to fare? Like, is the, is the pressure on him from the outset? Yeah, I'm not so sure, is it, because I think no more than myself in terms of, you know, you learn in punditry and you learn from over-expectation uh, on the back of the league final. First of all, it's a hugely talented group of players that will probably be, you know, added to by, albeit Patrick Fitzgerald wasn't, didn't light it up for Valley Gunner the weekend, but Patrick and Mark Fitzgerald, I think, will have an impact on the team next year. So I, I think there's, there's a kind of a more realistic expectation now in that, um, you know, becoming one of the three teams that qualifies from Munster will be ultimately the aim and I think I think Davey fancies that and if you look, if you watch and if you look at Davey's kind of track record even when he came in in 08 in Waterford um, all the way up to his involvement in Wexford I think Davey has a really really good bounce kind of um, factor and I think there'll be a bounce there there's excitement I know that Daisy Hutchinson in his speech even on on, on um, Sunday there after the match he, he kind of thanked the county board for the appointment so I think the, the earlier kind of not negativity but pessimism that seemed to kind of greet it at, at, at some levels in Waterford has been replaced by an excitement after all you know the man has won Munster Championship of Waterford Leinster Championship of Wexford All-Irelands as a player All-Irelands as a coach and I think the one thing I think Davey doesn't get enough, enough credit for because sometimes the animation can, can kind of allow people to have a particular opinion I go back to even 08 with Waterford Davey was the first man I knew that, you know, he put Owen Kelly in on the edge of the square, John Milan and Owen McGrath were 35, 40 yards from the goal and the half-forward line were way deep back in his own half of the field and similarly with, with Clare in 13, etc. So I think Davey is a lot more tactically flexible than people give him credit for. I think they kind of, people wedge him to the sweeper system, but I think you'll see, you'll see kind of, you know, a nice flexibility and I think tactically that Watford team will buy into that. I think they, I think they like the, the, the mixture of structure and, and expression and I think, I think Davey will bring that. Derek, I know you've got to go to class. You're very good. It's always fascinating to talk to you. Thanks a million for your time this morning. Cheers. Not a bother, lads. Mind yourselves. That's uh, Derek McGrath there. As I said, always really interesting to uh, to hear his thoughts. And um, there's somebody who will be involved in county management again in the future. And when he comes back, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what he does.
I'd love him to cross codes to to Gaelic football. Maybe get the Monaghan gig. Well, Liam Sheedy was on the Monaghan backroom for the last couple of years. I, I, like, there's no reason why. I think that's kind of started in the last couple of years where guys in hurling have have, have gone into the backroom teams of of Gaelic football, and we've realised that it's it's not that big a leap. Do you know, it mightn't be a head coach role, but of course they can still add something in the dressing room and motivation. Anthony Cunningham, sense, so. you would say, had a relatively successful time at Roscommon. Yeah. Uh, it's 8.58. Uh, here is the mystic man himself. This is John Duggan with another extraordinary prediction from last week. Have a look. Shane Larry, this is it. This is it for Shane Larry. Finally at Wentworth. He's the headline tip at 16-1 to 1 for five each way. Look, look, look at this record at Wentworth. Nine top 20 finishes in 12 starts. Uh, and we're like four times inside the top six. We know he's had a really good year, but he hasn't won. Tied third at the Masters, nearly won the Honda Classic, has been four times in the top ten on the PJ Tour in the United States. This is Shane Larry's ballpark. It's oh, his yeah. alley. He loves his course, Wentworth. He drives the ball so well. He's got the touch around the greens. Can he hold a few putts? I think he's a strong each way about this week as the headliner. Oh, yeah. Five each way. Ireland, Shane Larry, 16-1 to one to win this big event this week. Did you also mention Patrick Reed? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was the second pick at 40 to 1 each way take a bow John 32.9% profit now for virtual insanity for 2022 uh, so I was down the curve that's beating inflation buddy <laughs> yeah it's not bad 46.5% profit last year might be able to take this to America now we might be able to take this to Vegas folks for the Vegas sports books and uh get everybody in America behind it it's funny the hype there's a hype train that comes behind the virtual insanity I think when you know when, when results are going your way my brother we were sitting in Lonigan's pub Atlantic pub overlooking the Salt Hill Promenade on the Sunday as Lowry won the tournament and we quickly were getting up your, your virtual insanity tips and my brother was sitting beside me and he was looking at it going Jesus he had he had Lowry and Patrick Reid there's, there's a bit of a people are starting to think you have a, a crystal ball John I think well you know the harvest failed at Chatland this year it was like the wicker man I was about to be sacrificed <laughs> uh, but uh, we've kind of got over that now and the golf's gone well so look we'll, t- we'll take it while we have it but it's a long term game I was making a loss probably about a, maybe 10-20% loss until about two months ago and I think I've had three winners in five weeks so it can turn very quickly. That is um, not bad. There was a week off in the middle of that as well. Yeah, so, look, it's, it's just, it, it, sometimes it just, the, the harder you try these things, sometimes the worse it gets for you. But if you just maybe just relax a bit and uh, just watch as much don't as be, you can. Don't be modest, John. You should have walked in here with a Superman cape on. Well, you Go know. Go for it. You know, uh, you, have to be, uh, you have to be grounded in life. Uh, so it's like the, um, the bird on the, on the shoulder. Like you, you can't tell the bird to appear. It just appears and then it flies away sometimes. But at the moment, it's on my shoulder. Um, the rest of the season, there are tournaments. Yeah, the PJ yeah. Tour starts this week, the new season out in California. So we'll be uh, looking at that now today, Fortnite Championship. Uh, I, I really love these kind of events, like this time of year in, in the new PJ Tour season. Kind of the, the players kind of uh, can maybe a level below, but like a lot of kind of people coming in from the Corn Ferry Tour. So um, that, that's my kind of um, nerdy. Uh, study so no I'm, I'm big into that now it'll be about four or five of those events and they'll wrap it up you weren't a fan John of uh, as a lot of people weren't of Sergio Garcia's actions at the weekend taking a place off a a younger player who maybe could have gone into the tour and, and made, a, made a little bit of money for themselves there's a Twilight Zone is my favourite TV series and there's a kid in the Twilight Zone it's quite an iconic uh, thing where he points at he goes you're a bad man you're a very bad man <laughs> And I'm sure that Sergio Garcia uh, would, would attest that he's a good man, and maybe he's a good man, I, I don't know him personally or whatever, but uh, his, uh, his actions have not been admirable, uh, in con- complete contrast to Shane Larry. And what I can say for certainty about Sergio Garcia uh, is he's a complete underachiever. He's the, one of the biggest underachievers in the game, and there's a sense of entitlement there that I don't understand for a game that's given him so much. 
And I felt it really, really disappointing what I saw over the weekend for that. And I was a, a huge fan of Sergio Garcia. So really, really disappointed to see what, what's happened the last uh, while. But like all the live, you know, Greg Norman is the biggest choker golf's ever seen. You know, the Masters choked it in 1996, never won a major in America for all the talent he had. And you know, there's a lot of, um, I, would, I get an air of resentment out of these people in live. We're taking all the Saudi money. And I, I just think that there's more to life. You've you got to handle yourself with a bit of class. And, and I think that's been lacking in, in, in certain aspects of this whole live um, drama. Yeah, you couldn't find a better collection to like take off the tour and uh, shoehorn into a meaningless exhibition series that you don't have to tune into. It's like, well, uh, I, I'm actually I was because it's interesting what you said yesterday about Patrick Reed being an interesting character, Jerry. Because I actually think Patrick Reed did all, like you know I think Ian Carter wrote to the BBC per, like like was behaved impeccably like has has supported European tour events in the past. So um, I'm not too. Um, I'm not too hard on Patrick Reed, but the Sergio thing, like, you know, I'd love to, what I'd love to do, you know, if I had a private jet, I'd love to go around the world and just turn up at these press conferences and go after these guys uh, and just be, and hammer them with questions every single week because uh, they deserve to be called out and they deserve to be asked serious questions, you know? Yeah, I think um, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens, right? Like what we saw at the weekend was a, a golf tournament played on our time zone that really captured the imagination because you had some really high-profile golfers going at it. Having a couple of live golfers in the mix did help. You know, yeah. having Patrick Reed does help. Taylor Gooch, yeah. Um, and so the the tour will be lesser for them not being there, and ultimately that's going to dictate the fact that they're going to be allowed to play. Some deal is going to have to be done. Maybe they get maybe they get dispensation to play five or six tournaments on the tour or something and also in the Ryder Cup and these two things coexist pretty merrily maybe that's one outcome that is kind of there is a, an intermediate um, solution that isn't the radical live golf want to take over the entire world and they're going to get there and it isn't the uh, nightmare scenario for the PGA and the DP and all the other world tours like th- there probably is a, a money situation in the middle where everybody gets a bit rich out of it and nobody feels particularly happy about it apart from the live golfers yeah there's a broker that you need a broker for that and I, the, the, the camps seem very entrenched now like Rory has been beating the hell out of everybody around this like even the way he said about the Ryder Cup last week well the future of the Ryder Cup is not the guys like Poulter, Westwood, Garcia it's the Guards, it's um, Barbara McIntyre. Yeah. Like, you, you can imagine the frost, you know, you, you know, it'd be the second ice age if you'd Sergio Garcia in a locker room now with, with, uh, with the current, you know, Ryder Cup players, the European guys. But on that, like, I'm surprised Pat, well, Patrick Reid came out, he's obviously going to say this anyway, but he came out after the tournament and, at the weekend and said, oh, I was delighted with the treatment and the way that the guys on the tour, you know, came up to me and approached me. Like, I don't want it to be a case of these guys are saying all these... Um, critical things of the live players in interviews and then being all chummy with them behind the scenes because I think there needs to be a certain level of cold shoulder here to, to make them realise what they've what they've done essentially I mean like if Reed is getting Reed is quite happy with you know he, he's picking up the pennies at European tour events he's getting to still play the, and get the live money and yet he's clearly um, according to him anyway getting treated the same as any other player on the tour I mean, maybe he was getting treated with the same same way he was always treated by people <laughs> yeah. it hasn't changed you know I, um, <clears throat> they don't care about that though no they don't like ultimately the, the, what the golfers care about is like their routine and their money and mm. their world ranking points and their ability to get into tournaments and pick pick and choose whatever tournaments they play in which like they're not going to be able to do with Liv Liv, <clears throat> Liv are going to have a certain number of events you're going to have to show up on those weeks mm. like 
none of the logical arguments apart from they're doing it for the money makes any sense. I, I just remember Sergio Garcia. I was just so happy when he won the Masters, and uh, I look, like when he started his career, that that shot at um, Medina in nineteen ninety nine. He's a teenager. He's running after the ball. He won the Irish Open here at Drew's Glen. Like, you know, this guy was happy guy, smile on his face. And where did it all go wrong? I just don't know. Don't know. Anyway, uh, Spurs play tonight. Yeah, <laughs> and better news for you, John. Antonio Conte um, <clears throat> didn't have him back for a royalist. No, no, visited uh, Buckingham Palace, didn't he? So um, nice of him to do so. Um, yeah, you, you, never, you never know what 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 people's um, you know. Uh, I think he was just going as a gawker, though, right? Yeah. Um, look, I find it, it's Richarlison watch now. Anytime I'm oh, like, watching yeah, Spurs, yeah, I literally. Yeah. It's those flawed characters. It's the, t- it's the tattoo, Shane, as we discussed. Well, it's this, but like uh, there was a series done. On, I can't remember if it was Netflix. I think it was called Mavericks, uh, where they kind of you know honed in on sports people like the likes of Alex Higgins and and these people with with flawed characters, but also uh, intriguing characters. Uh, like I always find myself drawn to these people. I'm not saying Richardson is flawed. Anyway, say, well, he's he's he's, exce- he's different. <clears throat> he's eccentric. You know the, the fact that he's he's not afraid to show his emotion, crying with his with his family after the match. Uh, the other night scoring his first Champions League goals like I, there's just something about him that's you just know well the you know the cheekiness to, to pull off little stunts and matches that other players wouldn't even consider um, he's got that I'm not saying that's a flawed trait it's actually quite admirable he's, he's one of those people that is almost Cantona-esque in his aura I, th- I don't know if you agree John I know you're a big fan of him uh, well I think just because he played for Watford and for Everton people think he's not as good as he maybe is he's a really really good player mm. like he's a regular enough player in the Brazilian team and Romario played for PSV Eindhoven you know and was the, the player of the 1994 World Cup ended up at Barcelona so sometimes these players can play for clubs that are you know coming from South America that you wouldn't expect them to play for um, I, I, I really do believe lads Brazil are going to win, win this World Cup I think Brazil need to win a World Cup um, it's 20 years now and the obsession in Brazil for football. I was in Rio for the final and didn't get in, obviously, I've told that story before, but I remember watching the third-place game against the Netherlands, and this was after the period of mourning, given the 7-1 defeat to Germany. There was like five or six hours of TV that day in, in Rio of following the team bus uh, for hours uh, for a third-place match at the World Cup. The obsession there, and for you know Anthony, who came from a tough background, or Richardson, to come from their home country, to go to another continent... And to make it, uh, you know, it's, it's really admirable. And, and to have a bit of character uh, along the way with that, it's great. But it's probably helpful for him. He's got Emerson Royale and Lucas Moore there. Uh, and, and Conte likes him. So, um, yeah. I don't remember what happened in that third, fourth place playoff. I don't know why, to be honest. I was, had too many beers, to be honest. But um, <laughs> uh, I think, I think I, can't, I don't even know. I presume they won, did they? They must have won at home. They, they would have cared about it in a way that... I can't remember. Shane, you check it out there on Google. Yeah. Um, Richardson was linked to Manchester United, like, not very much, but a little bit. Um, we, we spoke to somebody who kind of was like, oh, the, he's got, there's a weird ownership structure of Richardson. It's not one of these um, Tevez-style things, is it? it? It's not a million miles away. Right. And I think that's kind of the case now. There's a lot of intermediaries who own certain rights to some of these players, and that's why you see them move on much more regularly than you might see or might expect. Um, so Brazil nil, Netherlands three in that third place. Oh, right, Van, okay. Van Persie, okay. Blindel, when you the complete score. opposite of what I thought yeah. would happen. Yeah. Um, uh, would Manchester United prefer to have Richarlison or Anthony? Do you know what? Uh, I, in the same way I like Richarlison is is also why I like Anthony. Like the straightaway bit of attitude, bit of 
completely unnecessary flicks of the leg in his, on his debut. That was funny. And, like, it was, it, there was no point to it, but it was still kind of funny. Um, and then the, the finish for the goal and the fact that he's straight away kissing the badge in celebration. He's going to be one of those cult heroes if he continues doing things like that, I think, at United. So there's just these South, South American players have a bit of flair, they have a bit of cheekiness and a bit of grit as well. They're not afraid of a tackle. The same way Lissandro Martinez, I think, is going to be a, a quality signing for United. They just add a different dimension. Like I, I'm interested, John, when you were over in Brazil... Uh, and football is the religion over there but the same way Maradona is God in Argentina is it too obvious to say that Pele is the, is, is the God in Brazil I know they've had a number of them over the years but is he the, the revered figure or is it a more um, recent thing where uh, Mario and Ronaldo have been uh, well I didn't really see Flamengo I didn't really go around um, you know the, the football I was only there for a few days. I didn't really see. I didn't kind of get to the murals of the of the of the world, you know. So I think like Brazil, like a, a lot of Argentina is based around Buenos Aires, isn't it? Like River Plate and Boca, uh, whereas Brazil a bit more fractured with Sao Paulo and Corinthians, and um, it, it's it's a bit more spread out. Um, also, I think historically, like Brazil was a military dictatorship, and Pele was you know keeping his head down under that. Uh, so Argentina. Uh, um, was in a, probably a more brutal military dictatorship, but it came out of that. Um, by the time Maradona was winning the 86 World Cup, it was a democracy. When Pele was winning World Cups for Brazil, it was a military dictatorship and didn't become one uh, a democracy until 1985. So I just think there's a little bit of a different vibe around their heroes. Um, and they've had so many heroes. They've had Zico, they've had Socrates, they've had Romario, they've had Ronaldo, they've had Rivaldo, they've had Ronaldinho. They've had so many that uh, maybe Pele... Didi, Vava... Yeah, Garincha. Yeah, so I yeah. just, if he just won of many, now the biggest one, but he's just won of many. Um, so therefore, I, just, I think Maradona is a singular icon in well, Argentina. And, and until Messi wins the World Cup, finally, this yeah. time, um, who knows? What a, what a proper end that would be. I think that Messi's, Messi's spent pretty much all of, all of his life in Spain. Um, that's a fair point. Right, uh, John, thanks very much. All right, lads. 12 minutes past nine. That is um, a victory lap for uh, the virtual insanity over the last couple of weeks. It's been in fuego. And um, you should definitely tune in on uh, Thursday when we bring you this week's OTBM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Um, here's what's on OTB Sports Radio for you today. OTB Gold is Chris Heron, who played in the NBA while he was a heroin addict. Uh, brilliant interview with him. There's a 30 for 30 about him. Uh, Dadcast episode of three, career perspective is Shay Given at four, and Joe meets Ruby Walsh on OTV Gold from six tonight, and then the show is live with Joe Malloy from seven. Make sure you uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and um, you can also download the OTV Sports app for the very latest sports content and analysis, and the best access to our podcasts as well. We're back after the break with the Republic of Ireland International, Stephanie Roach. OTB AM. Now, Just Eat are proud partners with UEFA as part of their Champions League sponsorship. Just Eat are set to visit four of Ireland's biggest universities on UEFA Champions League match days in September and October, aiming to increase awareness of their UEFA sponsorship. At each campus, they'll be hosting a soccer skills activation, and those who participate have a chance to win Champions League branded prizes, Just Eat vouchers, and one lucky winner per campus will win UEFA Champions League tickets and hospitality. And I'm delighted to say Stephanie Roach is with us this morning to help promote this. Stephanie, good morning to you. How are you getting on? Hey, lads, how are you? I'm all good, thank you. Um, <clears throat> the draw came through last week for Ireland and it punctured a little bit of the joy and celebration around the team, just given the fact that we were hoping for an easy draw and we got a really hard draw. What was your immediate reaction to the news that it's uh, Scotland or Austria and most likely Austria? Yeah, definitely. I think when you look at the draw, I think we did get the, the harder side of it. Um, I think also the fact that 
we obviously missed round one to get into round two and, and we've got an away draw as well. I think that was a little bit unfortunate because you think maybe the, the the team that's qualified to round two maybe should have had the home draw. So that kind of goes against you as well. But look, I think the girls have said it. I think they've come through a really tough group getting to the playoffs. What was a tough thing to do originally. So, so I don't think they'll fear any of the teams they're playing. But as you say, we've got definitely the tougher side of the draw. But it's just about facing whoever we get now, whether it be Scotland or Austria. I think... As you said, it, it probably will end up being Austria. I probably would have preferred Scotland, but um, look, we'll see what happens in that game and, and all we can do is just prepare for it. Hopefully there's a mass brawl. It goes to extra time and penalties and they're completely exhausted <laughs> and they've loads of suspensions. That, that's the best case scenario here for us. Yeah, definitely. Look, at it. <clears throat> he'll obviously look for everything that could possibly go our way and whatever can happen in that game can definitely, if that can help us. But look, as I said, I think the girls have faced tougher tests over the last couple of games. I think the, the game against Sweden away particularly was a great result for us. So look, I think we've seen in the past when, when it's all up against it, we're probably at our best, you know, we think we're expected to win games, probably that's where we don't perform. So I think to play a, a team like Austria might be a bigger challenge and it might be it might end up playing into our hands as well, you know. We were having this conversation a little bit earlier on about <coughs> the very definition of counter-attacking and um, the team has been built for big games. The team isn't necessarily built for dominating games against opponents who are of similar standard to us. But certainly if, if Austria come and, and, and or if we're in Austria and Austria are dominating possession in that game, Ireland won't really be that worried. The, the setup of the team structurally and tactically is designed to be able to withdraw or to withstand that kind of pressure. Exactly, yeah. I think that's that's how we've built the whole campaign. So as we've played throughout the whole campaign so far, I think when you look at the players that we have, you've got pacey players up front like Heather Payne and Leanne Kiernan, who you can bring in and, and they'll kind of take the pressure off the defence. And as you say, we're, we're kind of we've been set up in games where we've played our best, where we've been kind of compact defensively and just trying to use that quick counter-attack and, and get the ball forward quickly for those type of players to be able to produce something. So, look, that might sit, suit us a little bit better. I think in the, in the last two games, maybe we, we, we got through them and we got the result which we needed, but probably the performance wasn't as good as it has been previously. So, look, that might suit us a bit more, as I said before, kind of, as you said, the, the way we set up as a team is probably suited to be kind of a bit more compact defensively and try and hit them on the counter-attack. If you're to make the argument, Stephanie, for, for Ireland to progress, regardless of whether it's Scotland or Austria, like I guess Vera has, has ensured that these players play against some of the big teams, even in friendlies and that. She's, she's always keen to get some of the, the top-ranked teams against uh, her, her side. And then when you look at the Swedish draw as well, I mean, they've done it before against one of the top teams in the world, so there's no reason why they can't take on anyone. Yeah, exactly. And I think just it's in quite Irish DNA, isn't it, in terms of sports? We always seem to perform better when we're the underdog, you know, and I think that's something that we've always had. Um, as you mentioned, we play kind of against some tougher teams in the build-up to this campaign. Obviously, we had a bit of a losing streak, but I think it's stood to us going through this campaign because we've kind of been prepared for the bigger nations coming to us and, and kind of not just going into games where maybe you might win easily and it gets the confidence up. It's about kind of preparing for, for tougher games going forward within the campaign. And as I said, that's stood to us so far. So so hopefully it can kind of, when we play against either Scotland or Austria, that will stand to us again. But look, it's going to be a tough game. Um, obviously, getting through that as well, I think it's it's Switzerland will face Wales or Bosnia and then kind of it depends on who gets through the, through the group in terms of the three who will go to the, the mini tournament in February as well. So there's still a long way to go, but we just got to take it game by game and hope that hope that the results go our way. Our only our only real reference point for for a playoff in the, in the women's game was was back in two thousand and eight against Iceland. And I know you are you are part of that squad at maybe nineteen or twenty years of age, very young. But uh, what what are your recollections of that? Like I, I remember it was a one all game at home, and then the the game in the ice and snow uh, <laughs> over in Iceland ended ended three nil. Um, sadly, not to Ireland, but 
that must have been quite an experience for you and something that a lot of these these Irish players now are going to have to face themselves. I think, I think there's only three members of the current squad that were on that team back then as well. So it, it's a lot of pressure when you, get, when you get to that playoff moment. Yeah, and look, I think looking back on that game, that was my first ever cap for Ireland. And I remember going out on the pitch before the game and there was groundsmen going around with these big shovels and like hitting the ice. And I was like, oh, this isn't going to go ahead. There's no way the pitch was completely unplayable like and the game went ahead anyway and obviously as you said we lost the game but for me to see us getting to a playoff is, is brilliant because constantly you hear people talking about how women's football has progressed and the team is doing really well and for me we haven't progressed until we at least match what we've done in 2008 and, and we've done that with this World Cup playoff but for me that's the best thing that's happened now is that we've got to the playoff we've made that breakthrough and hopefully as I said I know it's a a lot harder of it obviously back then it was just a two game playoff it was home and away draw whereas now for the World Cup it's a little bit more complicated but for me matching that playoff and getting there is definitely progress and that's great to see so hopefully as I said the girls can go one step further and get us there but for me that was the biggest thing that ever happened with women's football was getting to that playoff and as I said over the years you're constantly told women's football is getting better it's it's this that and the other and obviously people are getting more interested in it but for me the biggest progression for us has to be getting to that playoff and that's been great to see I know, and like the the benefits of getting to a tournament mm. in terms of inspiring future generations. So that's the prize. And like, um, even if we don't qualify this time, you have to hope that the improvement in results is going to lead to a better draw for the Euros. And we should definitely qualify for the Euros, given how well the team is playing at the moment and the age profile of the squad. So, you know, you you can make the case that um, it's not going to be a disaster. We don't qualify, but it's going to be so disappointing because we, we're all so invested in this in this. Um, group at the moment I, what's what's your own situation at the moment Stephanie you were obviously back in uh, named in Ireland squads for the um, the two matches in the summer what's your, your situation at the moment um, yeah look I kind of have been on standby for, for quite a while now I've been involved with the home base squad obviously back playing with P-mounts um, I've been in and around the squad quite a bit um, I was on standby for, for the Georgia game and then got drafted in last minute um, just before my wedding actually so it was all a bit hectic but um yeah, look, I, as I said, I'm on standby with the team. I've had conversations with Vera. I've been around the squad quite a bit and obviously I've been part of it throughout this campaign. So, look, all I can do is kind of keep focusing on my on my club my club performances and, and hopefully that'll give me an opportunity to get back in again. But look, I'm always, as I've said, I'm always available to play for Ireland. I always want to play for Ireland. I'm not ready to, to retire just yet. But um, as I said, I'm on standby and, and I've had conversations with Vera. I've been around the squad a bit. But at the moment, I'm kind of just on the on the, on the the outside as nothing else you could do except keep scoring goals uh, like you did at the weekend yeah yeah that's it hopefully I can get a few more of them I probably should have had a couple more in that game to be honest but uh, look we got the win and as you said I got the goal which was nice I did want to ask you about the story that's kind of been brewing over the last uh, 24-48 hours or so the the Galway situation where Galway are doing relatively well at the moment (laughs) in the league you know a few wins here and they could be much further up the table They're, they're nowhere near the worst team in the league by any stretch of the imagination but They've announced now that they're not going to apply for membership of the league next season and they've uh, stated that they hope that somebody else will come in and that there will be a senior Galway women's football team. There's a suggestion today that it might be in connection with the fact that the game is going semi-pro and it'd be a bit of a disaster if going semi-pro was an excuse or a reason for some of these clubs not to progress. What what was your take and, and read and all that and what have your teammates and friends and colleagues within the league have been saying about it yeah look obviously when it was announced it was it was um, there was a message into our, our whatsapp group of p and a lot of the girls are going to ask some questions about it and for me 
I'll be honest, my initial thought was surely they're going to go in with Galway United. That's It's just been announced that they're not going to go ahead with it, but they're going to be affiliated with the men's team a little bit better. So, look, I, I'd be shocked if they do go out of, the team, out of the league because they've been a great team over the years. I think some of the players that have come through the Galway setup, like the likes of Julianne Russell, Maeve de Burke, Niamh Fahey obviously played there years ago as well. So there's players, there's definitely players within that region that are, are, are capable of playing in the Women's National League. So to not have a team would be disastrous, you know. And I think, as I said, they've, they've been successful over the years. Probably kind of that team that have almost got there, but not got there, you know. And, and when you look at their underage system over the last couple of years, they've they've won under 17 and under 19s titles. So they definitely have a young, good squad coming up. So to not be in the league would, as I said, be disastrous. So hopefully, as I said, my my thought straight away was surely Galway United are going to come in and and obviously they, they've gone full-time in their men's setup, so surely they can help the women's side and, and it can become one big club. Yeah, that would that would be really great and it kind of would definitely be a, a way forward. Like, is it taken as a fact that the league is going semi-professional next year? Is that what your understanding of that is? I, I, I like to hope so. I think the rumours I've heard, obviously nothing's been confirmed yet, but the rumours that I've heard is that a lot of the clubs, obviously we've seen the likes of Bowes, um, coming forward and and shells kind of affiliating with the men's team a bit more, so it's it's definitely seems to be heading that way. And look, it's something that I've been calling for for the last few years. I think when you look at the players and the standard within the league, it's definitely capable of doing that. And going semi pro will help improve. It will help improve performances. Will give the girls in the league a better chance to be able to perform and and focus more on their football and stuff. So I think it's it's got to be the way forward, and hopefully it will. Yeah, because that that seems to have been the reason that the the um, on Goa Bay FM the chairperson was saying that's that was one of the reasons why they couldn't continue next year now hopefully it is a way of getting the Goa United's ownership to go actually you know yeah we should actually be a men's and women's club it makes perfect sense it's like doubling our audience all the games that we'll play the youth system and, and the rising tide will lift all boats so fingers crossed because that, that seems to be the first time anybody's publicly said that's what's going to happen next year you're saying that it's long been rumoured so maybe that's the start of the official word leaking out yeah, hopefully, as I said, I think it's something that myself and a few other players in the league have been saying. And look, I know there's, it's easy to say it, but there's ways of how you, how you do it and how you make it happen. And that's up to the people within the, that run the league. But for me, I think it's it's the way forward. I think particularly when you see the women's Irish team doing so well, you have the Euros on TV. A lot of people are more interested in women's football. So for me, the, the only way forward is to go semi-professional. So please God, it happens. And look, we'll wait and see. It's far too early to be asking you this question, Stephanie, but I'm going to ask you it anyway. Like I saw on your Twitter at the weekend, you were at the FAI headquarters and a lot of um, uh, you were standing on the sidelines as a lot of young girls were taking part in a bit of a, a training camp over the weekend. Uh, there was a photo of you standing on the sideline, arms crossed. You had very managerial vibes, off you have to say. <laughs> like, is that down the line something that you're that you're half thinking about? Is it more punditry, or, or, or would management and coaching be something half interesting for you? Uh, definitely like yeah I, I obviously do quite a bit of coaching at the moment so I have my own coaching coaching that be in schools and, and running summer camps and stuff like that so definitely something I'd be interested in like obviously football has been a huge part of my life and I think if I was just walk away and not be involved in football at all I don't think I'd be a very good person to be around so it's definitely something that I, I'd love to get into and um, I love that side of the game and actually you mentioned the thing I've done with Sky like some of the young girls that were playing there were excellent and definitely I think stars for the future so to be able to be a part of something like that would be nice um, as you say a little bit further down the line obviously but um, that definitely something I'd like to get into would be a bit of coaching I'm doing my way for B at the moment so hoping to, to keep going down that uh, the coaching badge route and see what happens in the future I know you're a big uh, Manchester United fan Stephanie and I, I'm very jealous looking at you during the week at the um, 
Irish gross, Irish grocers benevolent fund charity dinner a lot of big names there Bernard Brogan and I know Ken Doherty was there as well but uh, Roy Keane I mean to be sitting at a table with, with the likes of Roy Keane I'm sure there were conversations off mic that were uh, more than interesting to be at that table yeah it was look it was a crazy day like obviously as you say I'm a big United fan and I actually I, I'd been asked to do that the events a long time ago and I only got an email about the kind of run through and I seen Roy Keane's name and I was just like Jesus Christ Roy Keane is doing this so it was all obviously as you can imagine as a United fan I'd be a huge fan of Roy Keane so to, to know I was going to be sitting at a lunch table with him was, was pretty special but it was a great day obviously and as you say we done the, the Q&A and stuff up on stage but before that we were at the table sitting down chatting and just hearing some of the stories and obviously as I said I would have grown up watching Roy Keane on telly and hearing some of his stories and also Ken Doherty like he's a, a legend as well so it was nice to be able to kind of sit down with the two of them and have chats and we actually ended up it was meant to finish at four o'clock and we didn't get out of there until about 20 past six so so the conversation went on afterwards as well which was nice and look it was a great day and as I said as a United fan to be in the company of someone like that was was fantastic. Did you get to chat to Roy much one-on-one? Yeah, he was actually lovely, you know, and obviously he has this persona and people kind of don't really know what way to take him or whatever. But for me, he was lovely. He was really chatty and we, we ch- just chatted about football. He, he was asking about the women's team and obviously where I'm playing at the moment and all that sort of stuff. So he was really, really nice guy. And, and as I said, it's, it's, it can be hard when you hear the stories about him. And obviously I've, I've known a lot about him throughout the years, but obviously being face to face and having that chat was nice. And, and as I said, he was a lovely guy, really nice. We've been talking all uh, all morning and probably all week, uh, Stephanie, about the, the postponements and games for obvious reasons uh, cross channel. Um, and it was similar for the women's Super League. Like it was, it was all set for this big, record breaking, massive attendance uh, kickstart to this to the new season at the weekend in in the men's stadiums as well, uh, which was going to add a little bit of an extra dimension to the whole season. Now that that's not happened, it, I mean, disappointing looking in from the outside. Like it probably won't wouldn't be the same. These games probably have to be rescheduled for midweek if they are to be in the uh, those stadiums, which might not draw as big a crowd. The families can't really go in the evening kickoffs and all the rest. Um, yeah. So a bit disappointing from that perspective. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think, look, obviously people are talking about how it's it's disrupted for the men's game because obviously there's such a big schedule at the moment before the World Cup. But for me, it's a bigger effect on the women's game because obviously, as I said, after the Euros, the promotion around the games, the first games of WSL have been huge. They're playing in the men's stadium. And like, there's been a lot, a lot of work that's gone into it. But to change the schedule like that has probably has really messed up a lot of stuff for the women's teams. And obviously, as you say, the games will now have to probably go ahead midweek, which maybe might not draw as many people in. So, Look, hopefully something can be arranged and, and, and the girls will be able to play in the men's stadium because I think, as I said, with the, the kind of interest around the women's game after the Euros, they definitely will draw the crowd and it'll be disappointing to see that not happen there, you know, but it's for me, as I said, I think the men's game has been effective, but for me, it's been more so effective for the women's. Stephanie, great to have you with us this morning. Thanks a million for joining us. Cheers. Thanks a million, guys. That's uh, Stephanie Roach there. Just Eat Proud partners with UEFA as part of their Champions League sponsorship. They're set to visit four of Ireland's biggest universities on UEFA Champions League match days in September and October aiming to increase awareness of their UEFA sponsorship now um, tomorrow we have Mark Lawrenson uh, obviously playing Ajax tonight Liverpool that is not Mark Lawrenson we'll have the latest episode of You Had to Be There and much more as well we're going to play out with some tennis I do want to tell you uh, one last time about our Brayburn Coffee which is the official coffee partner of Off the Ball each week we give one lucky winner a hundred euro voucher to spend on some Brayburn coffee goodness at an Apple Green store near you to enter check out at Off the Ball on Twitter like and retweet our Brayburn competition post and you'll be in the draw Brayburn Coffee never compromises on quality or taste to give you the best on the go experience on the road available at Apple Green stores today OTB 
AM. With Gillette, get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.